I'm Rob Penzer. I'm the Associate Director of the Helix Center. Thank you for coming today. I have a few announcements before we uh, introduce uh, today's participants. On Saturday, December 6th, our poetry series continues with French Surrealism, A Revolution of the Mind. Poet, visual artist, and Helix Executive Committee member Anne-Marie Levine moderates this roundtable with Professor of English, French, and Comparative Literature Mary Ann Cause, author, translator, and director of the publications program at the Metropolitan Muse Museum of Art, <coughs> excuse me, Mark Polizotti, and poet and translator Bill Zavatsky. Then on December 13th, we continue our Templeton Foundation-funded roundtable series with the search for immortality with philosopher Martin Hagland, astronomer Chris Impey, poet, essayist, and senior editor at the New Republic, Adam Kirsch, professor of psychology, Sheldon Solomon, and Jungian psychoanalyst and Buddhist, Polly Young Eisendrath. And there'll be uh, more Templeton Foundation uh, events uh, coming in the following year, as well as non-Templeton events. So watch our website for uh, further announcements. Now I'd like to introduce our esteemed participants in today's roundtable, Complexity and Emergence. And for the benefit of the viewing audience, could each of you raise your hand when I say your name? Mark Alford is professor and chairman of the physics department at Washington University in St. Louis. He performs research at the intersection of particle physics, nuclear physics, and astrophysics, focusing on the theory of neutron stars and the ultra-dense matter that exists inside them. After receiving his PhD from Harvard, he held research positions at UC Santa Barbara, Cornell, the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, and MIT, and then a lectureship at Glasgow University. In 2005, he received an Outstanding Junior Investigator Award from the US Department of Energy. For the last five years, he has taught Washington University's Physics and Society course, introducing the non-science students to the methods of physics and their application to questions that confront us as citizens of a developed and developing world. Zosia Kruisberg, a theoretical particle physicist and cosmologist, is visiting assistant professor of physics and astronomy at Vassar. She obtained her PhD at the University of Chicago, where she studied the physics of the early universe. She previously obtained a master's degree in mind, brain, and education at Harvard, and undergraduate and master's degrees, <coughs> master's degrees in astrophysics at Dartmouth. Her current research explores the interface between the mind and brain in the context of physics problem solving. She is a meditation practitioner and teaches in the Vaj let me see if I get this right, Vajrayana Buddhist uh, lineage of Shoyam Trungpa Rinpoche and Dr. Reginald Ray. Timothy O'Connor is professor of philosophy at Indiana University, Bloomington, and a member of its cognitive sciences program. He specializes in metaphysics, philosophy of mind, and philosophy of religion. He received his doctorate in philosophy from Cornell and has held year-long research fellowships at the Universities of Notre Dame, St. Andrews, and Oxford, and has delivered 150 academic lectures in 20 countries. He has published over 70 scholarly articles and is the author of two books, Persons and Causes, The Metaphysics of Free Will, and Theism and Ultimate Explanation, The Necessary Shape of Contingency. He's now writing a third, provisionally titled, Thinking About Faith, Philosophy, Science, and Christian Belief. He also has edited or co-edited six volumes of scholarly articles, most recently, Religious Faith and Intellectual Virtue. He is currently involved with the Interdisciplinary Emergence Project at Durham University. Raul Rabadan is an associate professor in the Departments of Systems Biology and Biomedical Informatics at the Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. Previously, he has been the Martin A. and Helen uh, Shulian member of the Simon Center for System Biology at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. 
He obtained his PhD in theoretical physics at the Universidad Autonoma de Madrid, and from 2001 to 2003, he was a fellow at the Theoretical Physics Division at CERN, the European Organization for Nuclear Research in Geneva. In 2003, he joined the Theoretical Physics Group at the Institute for Advanced Study, and in 2006, the Systems Biology Group in the, in the School of Natural Sciences at that same institution. His current interests focus on patterns of evolution in biological systems, in particular RNA viruses and cancer, next generation sequencing technologies, pathogen discovery and emerging viruses, and data mining electronic health records. Caleb Scharf is the Director of Astrobiology at Columbia University. Born and educated in England, he received his Bachelor of Science in Physics from Durham University and his PhD in Astronomy from the University of Cambridge. Following a National Academy's fellowship at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center and postdoctoral work at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Maryland, he has been based at Columbia with extensive research uh, covering cosmology, high-energy astrophysics, and exoplanetary science, and he currently leads efforts to understand the nature of exoplanets and the environments suitable for life in the universe. He's the winner of the 2011 Chambliss Award from the American Astronomical Society for his textbook, Extrasolar Planets and Astrobiology, and The Guardian cited with high praise his life-unbounded blog at Scientific American, as well as his latest book, The Copernicus Complex. He has written for, served as guest, or consulted for The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Nature, The New Yorker, BBC, PBS, and still other publications and media outlets too numerous to mention. Now, our panelists will begin. All right, well, perhaps I could start us off with a, uh, a very general question. Uh, what do we mean by the notion of emergence? Um, emergence is back in vogue in uh, discussion about the, the nature of the physical world. Um, but it seems to me that uh, different people may mean different things. There's a very uncontroversial sense of emergence, uh, which simply means that there are levels of organization in the natural world that involve patterns that are distinct in kind from lower level patterns of explanation and, and behavior and structure. Uh, in that sense, it's uncontroversial that there's emergence. Chemistry isn't identical to fundamental physics. Biology doesn't, is not identical in form in its concepts, its characteristic patterns of explanation to chemistry, let alone psychology further still from any of these fundamental sciences. Uh, so in that sense, it's, it's uncontroversial that there's emergence. Uh, the controversial question then is, uh, how do these different levels of explanation, levels of organization connect to one another? And so I thought I'd just kick it off by asking you to weigh in on that question. We'd like to I, I don't mind, I don't mind taking that. <clears throat> well, I guess one of the things that interests me about the concept of emergence is this question of causality. Of whether uh, you have bottom-up causality so that if you understand the, the fundamentals of you know, the electrons and the atoms that you can in principle predict everything that, that follows and that the, the properties of any emergent phenomena are ultimately predictable from those simpler phenomena. All this idea of bottom-down causality where the, the emergent phenomena alters, I guess, in a, to me, in a sense, it, it means altering the physical environment in which more fundamental processes play out, and they then play out in a different way. New fundamental processes emerge, and I guess, I, as a physicist, I tend to think of things like superconductivity uh, and, and stuff like that, where the, the structure of some uh, solid, a, a 
substance that will become superconducting alters the fundamental characteristics of electrons. It can form, this may be old physics, but Cooper pairs and things that, that then have different properties. And of course, so, so I guess for me, that, that's a really interesting question, something I have no answer to, and I'm completely ignorant of, but this notion of causality operating in two different directions, um, perhaps even simultaneously. So I think I can maybe uh, build off your comments here. Um, as an early universe cosmologist, I tend to take things back to the beginning. Um, and something that I think about a lot is what, so we think about the universe itself as a complex emergent system. Um, if that's the case, it seems like we can go back in time and sort of go upward in energy and think about what the conditions were in the early universe that allowed for a complex system to emerge. Um, because in one sense, from a theoretical point of view, we would expect that the universe was formed in a symmetric state um, in which photons created particle-antiparticle pairs and vice versa. And if that had been the case, then the universe would just be a sort of soup of photons with a proton-antiproton uh, pair sort of here and there. And there would be no complexity, and there would be no structure. Um, and it is because there were these uh, violations of symmetries early in the universe that we actually have a complex system to talk about. So I think that's where I tend to go when I hear the word emergence in the context of the physical universe is, is way back and, and really thinking about conservation laws and broken symmetries. Okay, so what, what I find interesting is that emergence is used in opposite ways. Um, that the, the strong type of emergence that Kayla was just talking about <clears throat> is used to say that the whole is more than the sum of the parts. Uh, but then there's the weak kind of emergence where you're saying that you can explain the behavior, complex, interesting behavior of something larger in terms of its constituents. And then it's got a sort of reductive feel to it. And you're using emergence, the same sort of idea, to say, well, there isn't really anything new here to talk about. It looks interesting, but it's actually just the same Lego blocks you know, arranged differently. And so you can, you know, depending on how someone's using the word emergence, they can be cutting in very different directions. Yeah, one, uh, one question that I have is, um, in this definition, for example, does it mean that the different levels, they are independent? I mean, obviously, if the, if the atomic physics is, is different, or so the physics is different, the chemistry is going to be different. So it's not going to be completely independent of the previous level. So they are fundamental, I mean, in the reductionist uh, way, I mean, there are certain things that depend on, on, the, on, the, on the other level. So this is not completely new, completely free emergence. I mean, uh, it's dependent on the other ones in the same way that economy depends on the biology. I mean, it's, you cannot. Uh, um, so um, if there is something that is completely new that appears on a different level, um, it's because uh, we, don't, uh, we don't have the power within the theory or within our machines or our simulations to predict that there is something new, or it's, uh, it's because there is something really new there. Well, good. If I could uh, jump in there. Um, I think you're putting your finger on a, a fundamental question, which is, does the very idea that the universe is built up out of some more fundamental stuff 
entail that the only kind of emergence uh, that one could uh, expect in the world is this weak sort that Mark was talking about. Does it, is, is the, because of course we believe that complex objects uh, in our universe depend in some very strong sense on their fundamental constituents and the forces that govern the binding of those constituents. Um, and I take it that the, the person proposing a, a kind of stronger uh, notion of emergence will say that while there is that dependency, you can't have the complex system if, if the underlying stuff isn't there functioning in the way that it does. Still, there may be certain properties of the whole that are not wholly fixed by the, the underlying um, arrangement and, and, and propensities of the fundamental stuff. So could there be, in some sense, that you, you hit a threshold uh, level of organized complexity and then a new feature of the whole appears that's not a simple structural feature like the shape of this table, but it exerts some kind of causal influence so subsequently. Going back to the question yeah. of uh, broken symmetry, so if you have something that is, uh, there are different solutions uh, for a particular problem, and you choose one, I mean, because it was historically what happened or something like that, then, um, I don't know, I, I would not say that this is kind of emergent. I mean, would not, yeah, okay. Well, the question is, should we be thinking of emergence um, in the same way in every context? There's lots of, of complex system sciences at various levels. You're talking about a very fundamental or you know, kind of big picture, the cosmological distribution of matter or something of that sort. That's one very interesting um, area where the, the question of emergence um, arises, but then it arises in more specific kinds of sciences, self-organizing systems, biological properties, psychological properties, consciousness. Right, the mysterious nature of our, our own subjective awareness as persons. And perhaps the way we should think about this, the idea of emergence uh, in these contexts, could it possibly be different? Is it an empirical question or is it uh, a, a purely conceptual question? Mm -hmm. That is, might, might empirical data suggest there's a stronger form of emergence going on in relation to this specific phenomena, whereas Mark's notion of weak emergence is perfectly adequate in abstract terms to capture what's going on in some other domain. What do you think? As a scientist, do you, do well, you just come with an a priori <laughs> presumption of weak emergence yeah, only? I think, I think scientists always okay. want to have weak emergence because they always want to say that everything everybody else does is just a game with the, <laughs> the, the, according to the rules and containing the ingredients that the scientists, preferably the physicists, lay down at the very beginning. And then the people at the higher level or special scientists, whatever you'd want to call them, would like to fight the reductionism, and the ultimate form of fighting it is what you were just saying, where you have some structure that emerges, some high-level structure that actually supposedly plays a role, a causal influence. It actually does something. And it's not just all the, the swarm of molecules of which is made up, all secretly, all doing stuff that somehow adds up to something, right? What you're hinting at is something beyond that, where you, not, not, not only is it not obviously obtainable from the sum of the parts, it actually isn't, right? That's what you would, that's, yes. the, that's the holy grail. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, and then the question is, is it for empirical reasons that we might doubt there is such a strongly emergent phenomena, or is it just a kind of working hypothesis that our, our native, our default setting as scientists when we approach a domain is that ultimately there's a kind of explicability, so it's at, at best weak emergence. 
Well, the default, so yeah, the default is certainly going to be being able to do business as usual. So I think you'd need some pretty dramatic evidence to push people away from the idea that ultimately it's all the standard ingredients operating according to the standard rules. So, and, and what's, what, what we can think about would be interesting would be what if such evidence showed up? What if you found something where it looked as if you really couldn't, some actual phenomenon, that you really couldn't explain it by using the standard model of particle physics or using whatever you usually did? How would we react? Yeah, what can be the best example of these strong... Uh, <laughs> How do you distinguish it from simply being ignorant? Well, that's the fundamental. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, uh, so some philosophers uh, and others will point to conscious awareness, subjective experience that we're all having right now um, as we think about uh, the, the nature of the universe. Um, it, we, we seem to have this direct, immediate apprehension of our own conscious states and uh, the qualities of our experience, the looks of colors, the sounds given off uh, by um, moving bodies. Uh, th these, these categories have no place in a physical description of the, the world around us, and yet they, they are an aspect of the way we experience the world. Right? Do you we, think that these uh, probably uh, we have a very good understanding of how the neurons work and they are connected and all these things? We would not be able to predict uh, something like that? Well, uh, Philosopher, the, the Australian philosopher um, Frank Jackson proposes, uh, you know, co contemplate. Uh, philosophers are interested always in the end game scenario, right? Empirical science is ongoing. So, what we have to ask ourselves is could, is there some sort of um, strong reason for thinking that no matter what the future development of science, which of course is unknown to us right now, uh, there could not um, uh, be a, a thorough uh, uh, explication of conscious experience in physical terms, and to, his argument is, you know, so so posit we have a neuroscientist, call her Mary, and Mary knows everything about uh, the, the the neuroscientific processes underlying color experience. So she knows what's going on in the visual cortex. She knows how the the, the light information comes into the eye, how it triggers what's going on in the brain, and she can, she can do all that in neuroscientific terms uh, enough so that if she sees a computer readout of somebody's uh, brain, she can, she can tell you about the, the intrinsic character of the experience. But suppose Mary herself has never had color experience. Suppose Mary grew up in a black and white room and was, was imprisoned there by, a, by her diabolical parents. Uh, and, uh, but then she escapes as an adult and she suddenly goes out, she sees a bright red rose. Right? Her first ever uh, non-monochromatic color experience. Right? And she says to herself, so that's what it's like to experience redness, right? It seems like she's learning something new, a kind of a quality, not about the physical world, right, but about the character of color experience, the intrinsic subjective character of color experience. And it, it, it would appear that simply having a picture of the structure and dynamics of the brain is not going to disclose that intrinsic quality, right? A, a, a congenitally blind a color scientist can know everything about the the structural arrangements of the brain um, and the dynamical processes that govern the unfolding of that, but it seems intuitively to us is going to necessarily lack acquaintance with 
uh, the intrinsic character of that color experience, some kind of intrinsic property of the color experience. Yeah, I can imagine the same experiment done in other species that are not humans, for sure. example. And then you don't need to postulate anything like a consciousness for, I don't know, understanding uh, the reaction of this uh, and the behavior of this animal, for example. Oh, sorry. Can you hear me now? Yes. So if, if, uh, if you uh, take a, another animal that is not human, and then you do a similar experiment, that's probably more ethical. So um, <laughs> then um, probably this animal would realize that they have some experience or not being cautious of, of doing that, but it's probably the same behavior. And, I mean, we don't need to postulate something like a consciousness at this point. So. But don't we, know that, don't we know that we ourselves are conscious? Isn't that something given to us before? Before any engaging in science, that, that's given to us more immediately than anything else, that, that I, I myself am a conscious being, that I'm having experiences of a certain sort. Yeah. I'm wondering whether what you're suggesting is well, this consciousness notion is something that mature science is going to do away with. Uh, we can explain everything in terms of structure and dynamics, um, and so no need to pause postulate consciousness, but, but consciousness doesn't seem to be something that we postulate. Yeah, it seems yeah. to be something that, my, that we start with. It's part of our da data. Yeah, but my only thing is that if, uh, I mean, it's just a question. If we forget about there is something like consciousness, I think the world can be exactly uh, explainable in the same way or non-explainable in the same way. I mean, if there is a person here if, uh, that is not conscious or something like that and can react um, in up. similar who's, ways. Who's, who's a zombie? Hands <laughs> up. And can react in exactly the same the same. I think you can react exactly in the same way against uh, different I, stimuli. I think there's a, a more fundamental problem with what you're saying, which is that what, what you're, you're sort of a first-person thing, right? You're saying there's this first-person thing that I have this conscious experience, and could science ever capture that? No, because science is inherently third-person. Mm -hmm. But actually, all forms of inquiry, and in, you could even say all forms of knowledge are inherently third-person, that there's really almost nothing that you can say. You, you have that experience, you can say you have the experience, but beyond that, it doesn't seem like there's anything you can do or say. So that supposing that the, the strong emergentist's dream came true, and there were these phenomena, and when somebody was, you know, uh, angry, something happened in the synapses of their brain that wasn't because of other synapses firing. It's coming from God knows where, you know, it's, it seems like it's coming from outside the system. Okay, so now, you, you're, well, we've seen this sort of thing before in science. We've had, you know, processes that seem to not conserve energy, and we postulated the neutrino, and you have little pieces of metal moving around on paper with nothing touching them, and you postulate a magnetic field. So we'll go in there, we'll postulate some other thing, right? We'll try and explain what's going on, we'll try and understand it. All that's going to be third person. Sure. And in fact, even when you're if even a psychologist investigating, explicitly investigating feelings, it's all third person. You're investigating other people's feelings. You're investigating how they behave, what they want, what they do. Psychoanalysis is inherently third person. Right? It's very hard, as far as I can see, to think up some way in which the first person thing that seems like the motivation for emergence is actually a form of knowledge. Yeah, yeah. And, and another thing I think in science, one of the things that is important is this, if we postulate that there is a magnetic field, for example, there are some predictions that can be done there. And going back to my point is that if we have an animal and we want to know, is, is there a test that we can do to the animal to know if this animal or this person is conscious or not without 
postulating the existence of, 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 of the consciousness. I think it's, we can exactly predict the same behavior. Good. Uh, maybe we, we should just pursue a bit longer, because I, I, I still think there's a little bit more to be said about the, the case of consciousness. Um, but I, th I think it's a special case, so I think eventually we'll want to transition to talking about other forms of complexity. But the reason I say it, it seems like a special case is precisely because in other domains, like, like you've been uh, both indica have, are, are indicating right now, um, it's when we get puzzling phenomena, that is observable physical phenomena, that are current inventory, uh, our physical inventory of properties and, and, and forces doesn't seem adequate to capture that we, that we then have to, are led to broaden out our physical understanding, so electromagnetism in the 19th century, right? In the case of consciousness, it's not the behavior of consciousness that leads us to think we're going to need some new fundamental explanatory principle. It's the intrinsic character. We have this acquaintance with consciousness, and then it's left for future theorizing to say, what difference does it make? Is it epiphenomenal? That is, is it such that it's just there, but it's an offshoot of the intrinsic character of neurophysiological processes, but it makes no fundamental difference to explaining the, the behavior of, of, of the conscious person, or does it in fact have an impact? That, that's, a, that's still an open question once you take on board the idea that consciousness is a, a new fundamental kind of feature. So it's, it's a very special case. And Mark was saying, but from the point of view of theoretical science, to make progress in order to gain knowledge, we have to take a third personal point of view. And I think that's right in every other domain other than conscious experience itself, precisely because what we're theorizing about is a first personal experiential um, uh, kind, of, kind of state. Uh, you know, so to, to try to understand the solidity of this table, your first personal experience as an investigator is irrelevant, provided you have enough experiential powers. Maybe you're, maybe you're blind, maybe you're deaf, you have certain limitations on your, your, your sensory apparatus, but it, provided you have enough in order to, to, to understand the theory of physical bonding processes, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you lack um, uh, knowledge of what it's like as a uh, normally sighted person to see the table. You can still understand completely the physical dynamics of, of the table and why it's a relatively stable, solid object. But conscious experience itself is the first-person phenomena. So if you say, well, we're going to leave that out of the picture and just talk about the dynamics of neurons in, in, in relevant portions of the brain, well, well, you're leaving out precisely what is being put forward to uh, for uh, explanation. So it's a first-personal phenomena intrinsically. So I, this is maybe taking it in a slightly different direction, but it's also because I'm a simple person <laughs> and I'm getting very confused with all these discussions of consciousness. But one thing that, that pops into, into my head as you're, as you're talking, and I think it relates to your, the first question, you know, what does emergence and complexity mean to you? Um, you know, you're assuming, I think, or perhaps when people talk about consciousness, that everyone has the same type of consciousness. Now. If we say that consciousness comes is an emergent phenomena from an extraordinarily complex biological system, electrochemical signals and so on, there's no guarantee that it's precisely the same for everyone. Right? There are enough neurons and synapses that every individual human, every one of seven billion minds, human minds that exist on this planet actually have 
something that's slightly different about them. Now, in a statistical sense, we can do tests to, to examine the, the nature of consciousness and our reactions to it, whether that's a red rose or a black and white rose and so on. But that's kind of a statistical um, test. It's not getting to the, the core of, you know, one of the reasons, I guess what I'm trying to say is that one of the reasons something like consciousness may be such a slippery thing, apart from our innate relationship to it, is it may be different all the time. Right? It's something that comes out of enormous complexity. And the same is true of other emergent phenomena. And this is one of the things we may be having a hard time getting hold of, is that there are, there's stochasticity in this whole process. There's randomness. Everything is it's going to be slightly different in every single instance. And perhaps that is one of the things that is making this difficult for us to grasp. It's certainly making it difficult for me to grasp, but maybe that's just because I'm very simplistic about these things. Does that trigger any thoughts? Yeah, I, I think it's not what you're saying. I think it's not difficult to understand because it's like planets, which you understand very well. Which <laughs> well, come I don't. In, well, well, I don't. Okay, which come in you know, millions of different varieties and are very you know, hard to pin down. That when you say everyone's consciousness is different from each other... Well, maybe. maybe. Well, I don't think there's even a maybe. It's not even clear there's a question. There is no way. There is a way to compare this planet to that planet. Even if it's difficult, you can send the probe, measure the spectrum. There is no way, even in principle, to compare your consciousness with anyone else's. It's, we don't even know what the question means. What do we do to answer it? So I think that's what's actually so slippery and hard about it. Not that it's very difficult practically. Right, right. So my, my present conscious experience is not um, just open to investigators to all look at verify that it has certain properties and then move on to the next subject and then do the comparison. Right. Right. Each of us at the end of the day, if we take the fundamentality of conscious experience seriously, we're, we're, we're stuck with saying all we ever have, any individual researcher has direct observational access to is her own conscious experience. And so, uh, and, th and so then we, one could worry that there's much greater variation in uh, conscious experience, even for people similarly poised physically, looking out at the same, uh, with, from the same angle, um, how much variation is there? Um, it, we, 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 it looks like we just have to make indirect guesses based, based on simil physical similarity, right? The brain scientists tell us about processes uh, that are going on, and there be common, being commonalities of types, but there's perhaps no guarantee that that directly corresponds to commonality of intrinsic conscious properties. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder whether uh, we could shift from consciousness, and I, maybe I could pass the baton, since I'm a philosopher of mind, um, but there's, there's all these other interesting physical phenomena, so I wonder if somebody could, could uh, run with um, a form put out there for the rest of us, some form of complexity in a domain that you study, and we could so I think, for example, just uh, uh, we were discussing before, one interesting one is, for example, something like the origin of life. I mean, if knowing the fundamental physics uh, laws and the chemistry and everything, if we could predict that there is something like life and if the life would be in this form or there are several forms or something like that. I mean, obviously, it's, uh, I mean, life exists and there, it can be measured, so it's a well-defined problem. So, and I think, um, I don't here we, have, here we have an expert that can give an opinion that is a little bit more <laughs> solid than <Yeah>. mine. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think you know, Origins of Life is, a, is an excellent example because we've, we've, you know, what's interesting about the Origins of Life question, just to go back to very sort of practical terms, is that, you know, it's a bit like 
defining life. There's a joke that goes around in these circles where if you stop a, sci a random scientist on the street and you ask them, tell me what life is, define that, you get a different answer each time. And one of the, the excuses that we come up with, well, life is a sort of emergent phenomena, it's a complex thing, and so, et cetera, et cetera. But this directly impacts the quest to understand the origin point of at least life here on Earth. Is there a clearly defined origin point? So we start to, to explore this and we look perhaps at the, the nature of biomolecules, how they, they might come together in chain reactions to produce polymer-like molecules that then fold and do other things and so on. Or we might look at, we might look for origins of life by studying uh, inorganic templates on the Earth. So for example, looking at hydrothermal vent systems where there are, there are um, electrical and chemical gradients that look remarkably similar to things that we see across cell walls. And, and the interesting thing about the origins of life question is that much like defining life, there are probably right now a hundred theories out there or a hundred investigations. Each is different in trying to answer what was the, the origin point of life. And, and I think what's becoming clear from that, at least to my mind, is that it's not unreasonable to think of life also as some kind of emergent phenomena. It's an emergent property of, of chemistry, but it may have had multiple origin points. And so this, this adds another, another layer to the, the, the issue of you know, complexity and emergence is, is you know, maybe there are some phenomena that, that are initiated in, in many different ways simultaneously, and it's the combination of all those that, that come together. So I think in origins of life research, um, there's something that we might learn by understanding you know, what really is emergence and is the and I'm sorry to come back to this, and I, I'm, a, I'm a reductionist, don't get me wrong, but, 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 the, but I do believe that there are feedbacks, feedback loops, and I think you know, a, a sort of intermediate way of thinking about this bottom up to top down causality is that there are, there are feedback loops that are initiated. You have an emergent phenomena, and it influences what's happening at a more fundamental level, but there is feedback, right? because at more fundamental level, there in turn influences the, the emergent phenomena, and there may be stuff like that happening um, in questions of origins of life. So I know it's, it's a little vague and, and nebulous, but I, I, you know, origins of life, right? Like if, if there's an emergent phenomena that we're really interested in, it's life, right? Um, so I don't know, does anyone have any feelings or thoughts about that? Is life an emergent phenomenon? You want to vote? <laughs> well, there's only, there's only uh, four of us. <laughs> Five of us. <laughs> I don't think anyone is going to disagree with that. Yeah. But is it, then what type of emergent phenomenon? Yeah, so that's a good question. Yeah. I think weakly emergent we would all hmm. probably go for uh, because there isn't, any, there, there isn't this sort of um, classic argument that it has to be something other than that. So it could all come from the dance of molecules. So that's probably enough for people to say that's the default hypothesis until you kick me off it. Yeah, it's interesting that um, in the history of science in the late 19th and early 20th century, um, there was a, a lot of very serious scientists who thought that life was a strongly emergent phenomena. They, they thought, it, well, just look. Look at a living thing. Look at the, the, the dynamical principles. There's a kind of teleology there that you don't see in non-living matter. Um, but that kind of uh, 
perspective uh, sort of completely fell by the board uh, with the rise of kind of the DNA analysis of life and coming to understand that one thing we know, life is a very complex phenomenon. Uh, so this idea that it's a simple quality that just sort of appears when matter is arranged in, uh, in the right sort of form, uh, that's, that, that's not taken seriously. And yet I, I, it's I, interesting that you're wanting to bring back in the question of, uh, uh, in terms of the origin point of life. So I, I think there are several things that I think one should take this idea seriously also. I mean, it's amazing that when life, I mean, when the Earth was habitable, I mean, a few million years or not even uh, a thousand million years after that, it was just, uh, it was after that we started having signs of life. So it was very, very uh, immediate that this, uh, this happened. So, um, so I don't know, I mean, we have only one example. So basically we have two solutions to the problem. One, no life in some problem, in some planets, and one life in, in ours, so there's only one. But, I mean, it's interesting that it happens so fast. So I think um, it could be that we don't understand exactly how to connect the dots of something that is starting from a soup of molecules that is self-organized to arrive to something that is kind of life-like. And we don't know if the solution is unique as the one that we have, or there are many different solutions in each planet. I mean, perhaps in a few years we will have a collection of planets like in, in a Star Wars, each of those with uh, different uh, creatures. There is a request that you all up oh, your volume. I see, sorry. <laughs> Are any of us here uh, fairly knowledgeable about more general self-replicating systems that are non-living? And does this shed light, perhaps, on, on right? There, there's a lot of science going on, treating of simpler non-living systems, but ne they nevertheless share with living systems this self-replicating dynamics and apparently um, and kind of spontaneous um, um, emergence, uh, but probably of a weak form of emergence where you, we can actually understand very well the underlying physical principles that govern these systems. And I, I just wonder, for someone who studies living systems themselves, which are much more complex, um, whether this is something that is potentially going to shed light and provide the answer to your question. I think people correct me if I'm wrong, back in, was it the 1970s, 1980s, people got fascinated by cellular automata, yes. right? These little, little, um, essentially computer codes that, that had very simple rules and suddenly you could get all this complexity emerging and so on. I, I don't know what people work on today in that, in that area. Is, is there some particular field you have in mind where people uh, are? Well, uh, I just know that there are, there are very simple physical mechanisms that exhibit. I don't, I don't know a great deal about it. I, um, that's why I was wondering if any of you could speak more to it. Uh, but that can be studied and that, um, so th these aren't just computer simulations like, like Conway's right. Game okay. of Life. Uh, these are actual physical systems that exhibit self-replication of a kind. But I think you'd have to have Stephen Wolfram yes. here <laughs> to have that done in detail. Yes. So I think that I'd like to make a point about evolution, actually, in connection with this. And that is that, so just as um, there's, there's people who would like mind to be something more than, uh, than the physical body, there's many people who would like the development of life culminating in us uh, to be more than just uh, random variation plus natural selection. And I think there's, a, there's an interesting form of overstatement that scientists are prone to in this, that we have biology and we have a mechanism by which you can see how random variation plus natural selection could give you complicated organisms like us. 
That's true. What you often see scientists do is convert that into a very different statement, which is, we know that random mutations plus natural selection gave rise to us. In other words, they go from random mutations plus natural selection would be enough to that's actually what happened. We know that all the mutations that actually happened in the history of the universe to produce us were random. Uh, those are two very different statements. And the second one is completely beyond what we know. Of course, we don't know that all those mutations were random. We have no idea. You know. But you often find scientists saying that. And then you get this big collision you know, that, uh, that you know, people say, oh, you're, you're eliminating God, or you're eliminating you know, or something. And I, I think as scientists, you know, here, physicists lecturing the biologists, what, how dare I? Um, I think we should be careful what we say. You know, we say what we know. And we don't say more than we know. Hmm. I think that's a good point. I think it's very difficult sometimes. Right. I know that I, I, you know, just the use of language is such that you find yourself in a corner and you'll say something and afterwards you go, ah, no, I shouldn't have said that because <laughs> I've opened myself up to, to other things. Oh. Yeah, it's often remarked that um, in, in physics we had Newton and then we had Einstein. This, you know, at the state of play at the end of the 19th century, people thought physics is basically done. It's just mop-up work. Um, and then we get this radical revolution in, in physical understanding. And as a result, physicists are perhaps more cautious and tentative of their endorsement of even very well-confirmed theories. <laughs> Biology's had its, had its Newton, uh, Darwin, but it hasn't yet had its Einstein that potentially that could be, you know, that, that, which isn't to say Darwin goes away, but it might um, say that more, there's more to the picture here than simply this very powerful explanatory mechanism that, that Darwin put forth. Um, I, think that's, I think that's true. Uh, and, but this goes to the question of um, scientists inevitably in formulating theories, they generalize from a limited amount of data and then work with uh, the theory and say, absent some reason to think otherwise, we think this perspective generalizes. All right, so, so physicists can confirm particle physics, basic dynamics of how particles interact by treating relatively small scale systems. And I'm looking at you, Zosha, please correct me when I say something that's just false. Um, but as I understand it, right, and then we, we sort of assume that, well, of course, the universe involves, I don't know, 10 to the 90th power particles, perhaps, but it's essentially just the same thing writ large, just an unimaginably large number of interactions. But the same principles that we observe in these, these systems we've carefully isolated um, uh, applies quite generally. And that goes to the question of emergence. Maybe, you know, at some point of structural complexity out in the wild, outside of our, our carefully constructed isolated systems, things function a bit differently. And then similarly, I, th I take that to be the point Mark was promoting with um, uh, evolutionary explanations. Yes, we do know these these, these, this kind of mechanism is at play in the biological realm, but whether that's fully capturing what's going on is an open question. But if you, if you uh, observe mutations that are always random, couldn't you draw that conclusion? Well, who's to say they're random? Right, I mean, what random means we don't have an explanation for why they did this and not that. You know, well, okay, so an explanation might come along at some point. All you can say is you don't know, you, know, the, the, you, you can't explain why the mutations did what they so did. So you are saying the concept of randomness is not valid at all? 
in any situation. I'm saying it's a sort of, it's, it's a non-statement. It's not a statement. Right? It's a statement that we don't know what happened there. It's not a statement that we do know that nothing interesting happened there. <laughs> so, so the fact that you can predict that there will be more of those things happening in a, in a fashion, quote-unquote, random is not enough, is what you're saying. Because this, this argument that we don't know, there's nothing that we can state where we can say for sure that we know. There's always we don't know in everything. Well, the, the interesting thing about in the, in the evolution thing is that you don't need to know. Random, in other words, you don't need to imprint anything on these variations. If they were random, combine them with natural selection, that would be good enough. There doesn't need to be a, a purpose or pattern in them. But that doesn't mean uh, there that there actually wasn't one <laughs> in the mutations that happened that led to us. And of course, if you're a scientist, you say, why would you bother postulating some crazy extra thing? And yes, fine. You don't have to. That's the whole point. But, it, but you're not forbidden to. There isn't evidence to disprove it, right? Just a point of clarification. My, my understanding that the way evolutionary biologists use the notion of randomness uh, in terms of uh, genetic mutations is simply that, that there, there can be a very predictable, in fact, quantifiable rate of variation for different types of genes, right? It might be one in four million or whatever. It depends on the individual gene type. Um, so that there's predictability there. And the, the, the term randomness is used to say that the change is, they don't, there's no bias towards favorable change towards the organism. In right. that sense, it's random. I, I think uh, what we know from the data is that... A little uh, louder. Yes, what we know from the data is that the mutations, I mean, there are distributions of mutations. Not all the mutations are created equal. I right. mean, they happen in particular flavors. And this is organism dependent. We know very well, also, we know a lot of things about what is the molecular understanding, I mean, how these things happen. I mean, if there is a deamination of uh, a particular base, we know what is the chemistry that happens there. We know many of the enzymes that are done in there. And there is a huge research, I mean, in, in cancer, for example, one of the things that we are doing, we know that cancers are produced by random mutations. We have evolution happens all around us in our bodies. And then um, we don't understand, we cannot predict exactly what is the mutation, but we understand very well what are the mechanisms that happened. We understand some of the distributions. We understand some, many of the, of the things that are there, and uh, we have a lot of data. You understand by descending to the biophysical level. Yes. Yeah. The, it's, not exactly. a it's not a... We cannot predict yes. what is going to be the base that is going to be mutated, but we can understand what are the, the mechanisms that are playing there. What do you think about the randomness issue? Randomness. I think randomness is critical. We wouldn't be sitting here if it weren't for randomness. Um, I, you know, it's interesting. In, in my field, uh, you know, one of the things that we come up against, so I'm engaged with many people in the quest to understand whether or not there's life elsewhere in the universe. And I'm approaching it in a very practical way. We're, we're looking for environments beyond the Earth where life might exist, or life that we at least could recognize. And I think one of the interesting questions that we haven't really addressed yet is even if, let's suppose that the biochemistry that exists here on the Earth and has existed for most of the last four billion years is indeed universal. You know, and that actually, the evidence kind of suggests that may be correct. If we look out into the universe as astronomers, we find 
um, carbon-based molecules everywhere. And it's the dominant type of chemistry in the universe. Carbon-based molecules are forming out in interstellar space over billions of years. 70% um, of all the molecules you see floating between the stars are organic molecules. It's just the chemistry of the universe. That's the way it is. And so at least very simplistically, you could perhaps connect the dot to say that there's, 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 you know, it's not a coincidence that life here is based around um, carbon chemistry. But what does that, or what are the possible outcomes? Let's suppose origin events for life. You mentioned this, we think that life got going pretty rapidly here on the Earth following the final formation epoch of the planet. And now, statistically, it really doesn't tell you much because it's only one data point. So it's a little dangerous to say, oh, it started quickly here. And therefore, <laughs> you know, maybe it happens easily elsewhere. That's a very dangerous thing to say. But, and I'm coming to the point about randomness. One of the interesting things that I don't think any of us have really tackled yet because we don't know how to tackle it is even if the biochemistry is the same everywhere. Wherever life occurs in the universe, assuming it does elsewhere, the biochemistry is basically the same. How different can the outcomes be? How random is that process? I mean, yeah, okay, we're used to thinking of, well, life on Earth, we have single-celled organisms, bacteria and archaea, and that seems kind of fundamental. You have a cell structure, you have the DNA and the cell structure, etc. Lots of things follow from that, and then at some point, complex cells like ours came along. Um, is it, it's not clear to me at all that even things like bacteria are a necessary outcome of biochemistry. Maybe you could do it differently and have a completely different evolutionary history. And so in that sense, randomness, I think, comes in to this quest to look for life elsewhere in the universe because for all we know, we're staring at it already and it's the same biochemistry. It just turned out so radically differently that we're having a hard time spotting it. Now, you know, I can qualify that statement. But, so in that sense, randomness plays a huge role in the sort of questions I'm interested in. It, it also plays, I mean, just to come to something not to do with life, just in planetary systems. Uh, what we've realized over really, the, well, I, I guess we started seeing clues to this before we had discovered planets around other stars which we have now done in the last 20 years. We've discovered planets around other stars, and they are abundant. What we've also learned is that planetary systems turn out different every time. We had this idea, uh, this sort of imprint in our heads, that the solar system was the prototype, the template for how planetary systems should appear. You have the little rocky planets close to the star. You have your gas giant planets. You have other things out there, and it all sort of made sense. Um, and we've had to sort of tear that up and throw that out the window because it isn't true. Uh, planetary systems are inherently uh, nonlinear, and uh, the outcome of, of the formation processes of planets will spit out different stuff every single time. Incredibly diverse. And yeah, that's something that is an enormous challenge for us. And it's essentially it's randomness. You know, the core is randomness, nonlinearity, complexity. Um, and I think for me, one of the things that, that weighs on me, or that I have no good answer, is you know, we still think that way when we're looking for life elsewhere. 
we're still strongly imprinted with the notion, well, yes, we know the details will be different. Maybe it's a planet of chickens, you know, or maybe it's, it's a planet of octopus or something. Um, but the truth is, we, we don't even know that. Um, it could be extraordinarily different. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you have, I, I would be interested if anyone has an opinion that, that somehow biochemistry and uh, life is gonna sort of converge on similar forms and similar mechanisms that we have here on Earth. Well, this, this matter is debated, yes, in uh, theoretical biology. So Stephen Jay Gould, famous uh, popular science writer, right, famously said, you know, if you rewound the tape of evolution uh, and let it play out again under slightly divergent uh, initial circumstances, you'd get something completely different. And but I think I don't know if I, he was thinking it was so completely different. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But but he tended to push this line. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so we know but, that but then you have Simon Conway Morris, who's famously, um, I think he's off at Cambridge or Oxford, uh, wanting to say, no, actually, we have a lot of evidence for convergence in, in evolution that uh, certain types of solutions to certain kinds of problems for organism types, like the mammalian eye, I think, uh, it's believed has evolved five times. Well, the camera eye. Yeah. Uh, the camera eye, yeah. yeah. The form of it. Um, right? it's, an, it's a neat solution to a certain kind of so to speak, problem from an evolutionary point of view. Once you have organisms of a certain kind that they're going to move in that. So there's a kind of landscape, a biased landscape, if you like, uh, of biological organisms. They're going to inevitably move in a certain direction. So I, I think one proof that randomness is important, so one proof that randomness is important in biology is that the experiment, you can prepare the experiment in the same conditions. The other thing is that, I mean, uh, natural selection works in different conditions and then and these things change. But if you prepare exactly the same conditions and you take uh, copies of a, an organism that is identical and you put it in, in different plates and then you move it forward, you can see that the mutations that they accumulate at the end, they are different. And then you give, I don't know, you give an experiment, you give some antibiotic or something like that. Some of these survive, some of they, they don't. So starting from identical initial conditions and the outcome is different. So this is done in the lab. And then, in, the, in that case, I think biology is, is, is random, I mean, in, in this sense. I mean, at least we cannot predict a priori, given the initial conditions, who is going to be resistant to the antibiotic and who is not of this bacterium, that they're identical from the beginning. So this is pushing back against this more global picture that someone like Conway Morris has in mind, yeah. as I understand it. So you're saying, look, we, we can, in a small scale, um, trajectory of evolution, we can, we can see it happening, starting from uh, slightly different initial conditions, yeah, I mean, things going in very different directions. What, um, what I'm doing is looking at uh, evolution in real time. So we, we, we work with viruses, for example. I mean, viruses, they evolve every, every replication, they have a mutation. Cancers, this is evolution that happens in real time. And uh, there are processes that accumulate mutations and all these things. And one of the things that is, is, is very clear, I mean, especially in the last five years that now we are sequencing like tons of cancers, is that every patient that comes with the same type of cancer, let's say a glioblastoma, for example, you take different patients, the amount of mutation, I mean, the mutations that happen, they are different. Each patient is a different constellation of mutations. So, um, and they start basically from similar conditions. We don't know exactly what are the conditions, but they have different paths. I mean, some of the key players, some of the genes, they are the same, but most of them, they don't. So, um, and then what the game. What is the understanding? Just randomness? The so, understanding uh, that each individual has a different. The observation, the observation is that um, they are different. And, um, and then if they have the same cell of origin, and uh, the idea is that there is a random process, there are several 
biological processes that can create mutations with different flavors. And then these mutations happen random. So probably if we take, we have like 10 to the 14 cells in our body. Each of the cells, they have different mutations. Most of the mutations they don't do anything. But some of the mutations, they contribute to the growth of the cell. And then when you accumulate the right or the wrong combination of mutations is when the whole clonal expansion happens. And then when we sequence the tumor at the end, what we have is a picture of what are the mutations that accumulated in the history of this, uh, of this particular clone. And they are different. I mean, this in cancers, we know so that it's there. So in terms of complexity and the emergence idea, so if you start, if you look at cancers as the end product, as the complex outcome of what was happening, then the final outcome is determined by events that are, or by, by mutations that are very different. But the outcome is the same. The outcome, I mean, one of the things, I have to be cautious with that, I mean, one of the several mutations, they're exactly the same in different patients. And this is why, I mean, uh, we are looking what is called, I mean, in, in cancer uh, uh, genomics uh, jargon, there's this idea that if they're, for example, in glioblastoma, there are around 50 uh, mutations in a particular patient that they are protein changing around that. Most of them, they are passengers. So they are mutations that they don't do anything. They happen by random. I mean, they are, they are in the background. So they, they don't contribute to the particular phenotype, so to this growth. And some of those, they are going to be drivers. So the whole, the, this, uh, the grail of the, of the field is trying to find, of these 50, which are, which are the ones that are really important for the tumor. So the classical uh, experiment or the classical method is recurrence. So if you see that, because you do the experiment, you have many different people, each of those with a different cancer, and you see that there is a mutation in a gene, let's say P53, and another uh, patient, they have mutation in the same gene, the probability that this is happening by random into the independent individuals is very low. And then you assess that this particular gene could be important for cancer. And then there are a lot of experimental uh, follow-up, trying to understand what are the molecular mechanisms of how this particular alteration in that particular gene could contribute to the cancer. So that's, uh, that's a very standard uh, method. So could I ask perhaps the, the appearance of the driver yeah. uh, type mutations um, is the thought that th these two are, are just random and they just once there, they, they tend to determine a phenotypic process, a process observable. A, a, so this is the, or, or is I mean, some, something about, you know, they keep showing up. Yeah, you, without going into the debate of the overstating. Is there non-random about that in biological terms? I mean, it depends on how you define yeah. random. So uh, there are several, for example, I mean, if you go to the sun, then you get some radiation, and radiation, we know what is causing damage in, in some DNA. And there are several chemical processes, or smoking, or something. I mean, uh, these are things that are kind of processes that, in this background, they increment the rate of certain type of mutations, and okay. these things so contribute. They, those, lar those environmental factors um, bias, bias the mutation. So you have a distribution. You have uh, the model that we work is that we have a probability of changing the R4 bases, and then so you have each of the four bases can change to the, all the other three. So you can have a matrix of 
different possibilities. So there's a distribution, and this distribution is conditional on the environment that you have and the molecular mechanisms that are beyond that. So you can see, for example, just counting the mutations that happen, that there are some of those that happen more frequently than other ones. And then one of the things that is very interesting is understanding, for example, if there are patients that they have different mutational patterns than other patients, that can, understand, that can give you a clue of what are the molecular mechanisms that are acting in that particular set of patients. So there, is, there are many questions there associated to that. So, but the questions are very precise. I mean, in the sense that you can measure things, and then you have tons of data, and then you can fit distributions. And, and random means uh, sampling from a particular distribution. So it's not kind of a uniform. As a cosmologist listening to you, I feel uh, sort of jealous that you have so many systems that you can study because in cosmology, you know, we have our one universe. Yeah. And uh, I was thinking about this dependence on initial conditions. And this is such an essential point when we think about the emergence of complexity in the universe, which is that if the fundamental, the values of the fundamental constants were slightly different, we would have a very different universe. And of course, the wonderful thing about doing this kind of research today is that we can. Uh, study sort of imaginary universes via computational analyses. Um, and we can see that if we were to change, uh, you know, the charge of the electron by a small fraction, um, the universe would look completely different. Um, but how wonderful it would be to have all of these little universes and a multiverse to study and see, well, what fundamentally do we need to get this kind of um, emergent phenomena in our universe? It's the way that you can study uh, the initial conditions in the DNA and the environment that create this kind of a, um, a, a, the beginning of a cancer tumor, for example. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that is interesting in biological systems, especially the ones that are evolving very fast, I mean, if you talk about human evolution, or it's, it's much harder, but something that you can do in, in the lab is, I mean, you can create a system, change conditions, and then try to see how the distributions, I mean, randomness can be quantified in a particular system, I mean, just some distributions, and how this distribution shifts when you change the parameters there. And that's something that is, is very, very... So I can cool. see why you shifted from physics to biology. <laughs> but in the early universe, you have lots of spectrums of fluctuation. Right? It's just that they all seem to give rise to similar-looking galaxies. Is that a fair statement? Uh, the primordial fluctuations? Yeah. the post-inflation. Sure. Right? They're, they're, they're different, as different as different mutations, and yet... Uh, I don't know if I would say that those fluctuations are as different as... Uh, as uh, kind of the, the sorts of things that we talk about in biology. I think um, what we're talking about in the early universe are uh, fluctuations in the original quantum field. Uh, these fluctuations then just give rise to these slight density perturbations, and then those density perturbations evolve with the expanding cooling universe to produce um, gravitational wells that tend to then produce galaxies. Um, so I don't know if they're as different um, statistically as that system, but 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 I'm, I'm I don't know. It could be convinced otherwise. Well, so he's got four rungs in his ladder, mm. right? <laughs> <laughs> and he can put them in different orders. Mm -hmm. And you've got this random field that can have mm -hmm. a different value at each point in space across light years. I mean, that doesn't seem so bad. It's just interesting that you get <laughs> you, you get very similar-looking galaxies mm -hmm. coming out of it. Is that right, though? I mean, are all galaxies kind of brothers? A uh, galaxy. I mean, galaxies are are quite similar in a sense. I mean, there are different morphologies and there are different, slightly different evolutionary histories, but they are 
similar, certainly in their properties. Uh, I, I'm just thinking back to these primordial density fluctuations because um, what we find, of course, is that the early universe is incredibly homogeneous and isotropic. I mean, it's an incredibly homogeneous system. And then we have these, uh, if we look at it from the point of view of temperature, temperature fluctuations on the order of one part in 100,000, those are the level of the fluctuations. And those little fluctuations are enough to give rise to this uh, very uh, interesting looking and beautiful looking universe. So I don't know if we can compare those with the base pairs, uh, those tiny little temperature fluctuations. Um, but on the very large scale, the universe looks, continues to look homogeneous and isotropic on the scale sort of beyond uh, galaxies, superclusters, I suppose. Um, so it continues. Uh, I'm just not sure if, if, it, if, it, if it's so different on the small, on the very small scale. So could, could we affect the evolution of the universe? I mean, that would be the ultimate closure, right, where you have complicated things give rise to life, and then life goes back and changes the whole... So in practice, you mean? Not nah, in well, let's, let's, you know, hey, let's dream. <laughs> well, the evolution of the whole universe, or just well, or the some way part it looks? of it. Sure. Could we create a baby universe? I think we're going to have to start to define universe carefully if we're uh, going to ask that question. Choose whatever definition makes it interesting. But there's something that, I mean, in, in you know, further down the timeline from the sort of cosmology that you focus on, um, the sort of cosmology I used to do before I got into planets was, you know, there's this, uh, you, there's a certain volume of the present day universe that you tend to say, well, that's kind of a fair sample, right? And it's, I've forgotten the typical side. Maybe it's you know, 20, 000, uh, 20 million light years across or something. It'll contain enough galaxies that you have a, a cross-section of everything. And that's like your Petri dish, mm -hmm. right? You say, okay, I've got that experiment and I've got another experiment over there that is essentially, there can be, other than radiation passing between these two places, there's no other causal relationships. It's like having multiple experiments. But it's for things like galaxies. I think when you're talking about taking, yes, the properties of the early universe, I mean, you really only have that one experiment, right? It's infinitely large. But we don't see all of it. Well, okay. We only see to the, the, the yeah. edge from which light we has see, had time to reach it. Yeah, so. we see, what is it? 10 billion, 100 billion galaxies? How many do we see? Oh, I don't no, know about exactly uh, 300 numbers. billion. Oh, Give or take. sorry. <laughs> uh, it's sort of fascinating to me that there's, they, they're all sort of looking like, the, the uniformity is sort of weird. Mm -hmm. I mean, but the oh, uniformity yeah. on that large scale reflects the uniformity of the early universe. So it's because we have this very uniform, uh, very uniform universe in the, in, the, in the early days that the universe looks so uniform on the large scale today. But then, of course, from the perspective of the topic of this uh, conversation, once you look at a smaller scale, so smaller than 100 megaparsecs or whatever it is that we're looking at, that we get these much more interesting, complex sorts of structures. I want to go back to another experiment that happens also there. It is the exoplanets, for example. There you have uh, different clouds forming stars, and then you have planets, and then, I mean, now we start looking at distribution. So each of those is a different experiment, and there are now, like, I don't know how many there are, like 5,000 or something like that? A little over 4,000. Yeah. yeah. So then you have 4,000 experiments of similar things, creating planets, and then you have distributions. I mean, you can do the statistics. I mean, distributions of planets, what is the largest, the distances, and electricities, and all these things. I mean, you can do a lot of things there. 
So I think in this aspect, I mean, it's becoming a very, I mean, different experiments. Inside. I mean, you cannot produce them, but you can observe them. No, absolutely. I mean, I, it's funny, when I started out as an astronomer, some people said to me, oh, it's such an impoverished science. You, you, know, you can only look at stuff. You can never do the experiments. Um, but it's extraordinary what you can do by just looking and observing. And, and in the universe, okay, maybe the one universe, that's one experiment, but then the subdivisions of the universe are multiple experiments on the different phenomena that emerge in our universe. And, and it's extraordinary what happens I, actually I, this this may piss you off because it's sort of a, a sort of one of these uh, top down type things but you know something we've learned um, to do with galaxies for example that i think nobody predicted and really comes from quite fundamental physics is the fact that the, the form and nature of galaxies, so a galaxy is a great agglomeration of stars. The Milky Way has maybe 200 billion stars in it also, and there are other, you know, all these other billions of galaxies, and they're all sort of morphologically different, and there are different histories, and when and where exactly the stars were made in those galaxies. Some of that we now understand is driven by the behavior of supermassive black holes that form perhaps contemporaneously with these galaxies way back 13 billion years ago. And they're huge things. Some of them are a billion times the mass of our sun. And as matter falls into them, it generates energy that pours back out across the, the galaxy and it influences subsequent generations of, of stars. And so it profoundly impacts the, the characteristics of the stars, the planets, everything. Um, but who would have thought? Right. This is coming from black holes, and it's the particular properties of black holes that give rise to that kind of interesting feedback. I mean, I, I find that kind of extraordinary, because, I mean, presumably you could have universes where you can't make black holes. Is that possible? Uh, uh, oh, I guess anything is possible. I think anything <laughs> is possible depending on your physical law. If we have a law of gravitation the way that we have in this universe, then we could get black holes. Uh, but go, to go off your comment about black holes, even more fundamentally than that, the fact that actually the evolution of the universe is, seems to be affected so profoundly by the presence of dark matter and dark energy, which are these really mysterious substances that we've only learned about in the last, I mean, less than 100 years even for dark matter. And um, yeah, so it, it seems like such a... And we know, of course, that dark matter gravitationally um, influences the formation histories of galaxies and dark energy uh, really on the, on the larger scale of the universe affecting whether or not a galaxy cluster can actually come together without being sort of pushed apart by the expansion of space. So there's, it's, there's so many factors, so much physics going into um, this seemingly simple process of galaxy formation even. Of course. The stuff we're made of is just four percent mm -hmm. of everything. It's dark matter, dark energy, the total mass energy content of the universe. Most of it isn't like us. That's right. right? With this tiny little sprinkling of normal matter, baryonic matter, that, that's, that's doing all this interesting stuff. But it's interesting. I mean, I mean, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but. And perhaps it's, we're too ignorant of what dark matter really is and what it's actually, you know, we can't see it directly. We can only see it through its, its gravitational influence. But you know, the interesting thing is it's that tiny sprinkling, that 4% that seems to have all this complexity. And I mean, I guess that's just the nature of it. That's just how it is. 
Well, it's possible, of course, that um, it, it's, it's quite interesting these days because we know that dark matter is out there based on its gravitational influence on the visible matter. And we've never been able to detect it in either a space-based or Earth-based observatory. Um, so when we create theories of what dark matter could be, we inevitably begin with the simplest possible situation. So my PhD thesis, for example, I postulated a maverick dark matter where there was only one, all of the dark matter, so 95% of the matter in the universe, or, well, that's not right, 80% of the matter and 20% and, uh, and, and 20, 20 of the uh, matter and energy content was composed of one single particle. But of course, that's just a hypothesis. Um, given the complexity of the... Uh, one type of particle. One type of particle, yeah, not one particle. <laughs> that would be quite strange. <laughs> um, and given the complexity of the visible uh, segment of our universe, I think it would, uh, it's naive to assume that the dark uh, sector is equally, is, is, is simpler than that. So yes, yeah, so we just don't know. It could be composed of a very complex um, spectrum of particles and interactions that we just can't probe. So that's a whole other level of complexity that, that may never be accessible to us. And, and we hope, of course, that it is um, in our present-day experiments, especially at the LHC. So, Shed, I wonder, um, I, I introduced consciousness as one place where science and philosophy sort of butt up against run each away other. From that. <laughs> yes, well, and, and uh, but now, you know, sort of your bailiwick uh, is, seems like contemporary cosmology is another. Um, so you, you know, you mentioned the um, the way the universe seems to be. You know, the fact that we can do computer simulations of of assuming slight variations in the initial conditions or slight variations in the properties of fundamental particles, and then see how would would things play out at a kind of macroscopic level. Uh, and apparently, physicists say that in, van in vanishingly small. Uh, percentage of the, these possible variations, would you have anything suitable for the development of life? So-called fine-tuning. So our universe seems exquisitely fine-tuned for uh, the eventual emergence of life. Um, what sort of, you as a theorist, as a physical theorist, uh, to what extent does, do you feel driven to look for explanations? So, so we get theoretical cosmologists um, speculating about multiverse, you know, maybe our universe uh, just ha ha has what it has what it takes for there to be life. Um, the reason that we see such a thing, this such an extraordinary thing, is that there have been untold billions of such universes emerging or, or being given rise to by some primordial condition. Uh, most of which, almost all of which, have no life. And of course, we happen to notice it because we we can only notice the universe that is capable of sustaining life, right? Uh, so to kind of try to explain away the, the, the surprising and uh, seemingly rigged character of the universe by postulating our universe as one of just a, a huge number of universes. Are you inclined towards that sort of thinking? And what's the state of play these days among physicists? From a historical point of view, you kind of want to take uh, the Copernican principle to the extreme or something, that 
uh, first we discovered that the Earth was not the center of the solar system, and then the solar system was not the only system, and then our galaxy was not very special, and um, our galaxy cluster is not very special. So if we take that to the extreme, then certainly it would seem like a reasonable proposition that we, our universe is not the only universe. From a, an experimental point of view, it's complicated because if there are other universes, and again, coming back to the precise definition of a universe, if a universe is everything that we can possibly probe, then another universe, by definition, cannot be studied. So from a scientific point of view, that becomes complicated. Um, that hasn't prevented everybody from not <laughs> investigating. And I think it's a very reasonable thing to, to study is, are there theoretical physics models that would give rise to uh, multiple, uni multiple universes? And people are doing it. And it's particularly interesting, of course, in the realm of string theory. Uh, me personally, it just seems so, it's a little bit like even string theory within, within our universe, that if it's, and maybe you can speak to this, having been in that realm, um, if it's inaccessible experimentally even within our universe, then for sure we should, people should continue to study it. But it, is it science if we can't, if it's not a falsifiable theory? So maybe it will become such a thing, but it's not there yet. And with the multiverse, it gets even more complicated because we go outside of this universe. So I don't know, somebody who's uh, been in uh, string theory, maybe Raul can. Yeah, so when I, when I was in, uh, at the Institute for Advanced Study in, in Princeton, I was working, and there is a very strong group in, in string theory. And then uh, there was also the debate when there was all these landscape ideas and all these things. And I have friends in the two fields. So I have my personal opinion that um, I'm not going to reveal. But, <laughs> but I think it's a very interesting debate. So uh, I think the debates would be there. And it's, it's Can I reveal my personal opinion? <laughs> <laughs> Since you're being coy. Okay. Um, I think, I think this, this multiverse explanation is extremely dangerous. I, I think, I think it's, it's a cop-out. You know, so there have been things in the past that were mysterious, like at one point, all the electrons in the universe have the same mass and the same charge. My God, what an amazing coincidence. You know, who rigged that? Maybe, we're, maybe there's a billion universes. We just happen to be in the one where they all happen to come out the same. Well, if you think that, that stops you from discovering what we now think is the real explanation, which is that there is one electron field everywhere, and that these different particles are just sort of, you know, ex excitations of that one field. So a coincidence like that is a call to do good science to explain it. And things like, oh, well, maybe it just randomly came out because I postulated a billion, oh, sorry, 10 to the 500 unobservable things, and we happen to be in the one which is the way that we see. It just seems to me, you might as well say, I think Zeus did it. Yeah. You know. No, it's just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, this is exactly where the debate was at this time, and um, one of my closest friends is a person that is working in, in these things. So, um, but uh, I think uh, the difference is that, um, I mean, it's not a crazy speculation. I think there is an underlying theory, like a string theory, that is it's more than a theory, it's a framework of thinking. And then there you can do calculations, you can do distributions, you can do things that are uh, more quantitative. Yeah, I, if you could get evidence for this, and you, you weren't just postulating all those multiple copies simply in order to get out of having to explain 
our copy, that's a problem. But if in our universe you can find, you were saying it's very difficult to observe, right? If nonetheless you can find some sort of evidence that all these other things exist, independent of needing them to explain this, <laughs> that's fine, of yeah. course. And maybe I can just add one, I, this is a slightly more mundane point, but you, know, you, you talk about the apparent fine tuning of the universe for life. And I, I think often that gets a little blurry because the truth is, the details of it are that you could actually tweak the fundamental properties of the cosmos a fair amount and in principle still have the sequence of events that led to life here on Earth. So, you know, for example, you can tweak properties a little bit and still get stars that produce carbon in some quantity. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, I, I always, it's just something, there's something about this notion, oh, it's, it's perfectly tuned for life. It's not actually true. I mean, it is tuned in such a, or it, 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 the, there are, there's a coincidence of fundamental properties such that in at least one place it was possible for life to emerge. You know, that, that is different than saying the universe is somehow perfectly, perfectly tuned. You can go and you can play with um, you know, cross-section of interaction for nuclear processes in stars a fair amount and still make carbon and still have stars that basically look like the stars that we see in our universe. Um, so in a sense, uh, you know, for me, the more interesting question, and I, you know, this, I'm totally biased, is what is it that determines the total amount of life in the universe? Right? Not just the fact that there is one instance of life. There must be something, at least within our observable universe, which is a finite thing, um, that determines how often and how much life, how many, you know, how many living organisms or things are there in the entire observable universe. That's a fixed number at any given sort of cosmic time. Um, that, to me, is the more... Anyway, sorry, that's going off well, on a slight tangent, but... I mean, just as I understand it, uh, we're talking about different sorts of independent factors uh, that's, that are relatively fundamental, at least in the current, our current physical framework. And some of them have more play, right? You could sure. still get, you could get life with some, and then others are exquisitely fine-tuned. So there's variation, and I, I, you know, the estimates vary. There's a little bit of controversy about how independent some of these are of, of others, so but two to three dozen, perhaps as many of independent fine-tuned factors, and some of them, I'm told, are exquisitely fine-tuned. You really can't play with it very much at all. A number of dimensions. Yeah. Right. Yes. That's one. But the cosmological constant is another fine-tuning problem. But the, but, the, but the whole fine-tuning thing is absurd. The knobs, you know, we think that the labeling we have on the knobs when we write the uh -huh. physics textbook is somehow the label that God uses to decide, well, what, what mass electron am I going to give them? What cosmological constant am I going to give them? You know, it's, the whole point of science is to, is to understand things and explain things. And so firstly, if you think there's a miracle, you should be coming out with a real explanation for it. And secondly, <laughs> you know, maybe the, the, the laws of physics just are what they are. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a great achievement, right? To, to be able to explain all sorts of things from snowflakes to, you know, whatever, on the basis of a fairly simple set of laws with 19 arbitrary constants. Well, I Good. Well, <laughs> well, it may not be a question. If, if that turns out to be the state of the fundamental theory, right? We, well, can't, to say what's we can't simplify. Actually, that gets to an interesting question mm. we ought to talk about. Maybe there is no fundamental theory. Maybe it's always emerging from something, you know, elephants all the way down. 
right? Turtles. You know, turtles. Turtles. turtles, sorry. <laughs> Dif different religion. <laughs> turtles all the way down. It's butt right. passing all right. the way so, down, so call, right, if, yeah. if the properties of my body, the, the causal capacities I have biologically, uh, are derived in some sense from the interaction of my cells and their arrangement and so forth, all right, they're, they're not fundamental physical pro uh, force properties that I have. And, but if it's derived, can, can, can causality be forever passed passed on and nothing ever has it intrinsically, has, has, has any kind of inherent capacity to do things? How, can you forever borrow? I mean, it, it sounds like it's, it's analogous to kind of borrowing money, you know, so somebody's got to have money originally, you can't just borrow, <laughs> can't be infinitely borrowed. Yeah, one of, one of the things that is, uh, I, I think, what is different in physics is that, uh, so now I don't, yeah, the microphone. <laughs> so uh, one of the things I think in, in fundamental physics that is different is that uh, what the 20th century has been is basically unifying, finding frameworks. I mean, you have a way of uh, uh, computing things. I mean, uh, you have field theories. You have ways of understanding of how to do uh, calculations. You have a few fundamental blocks, and the fundamental blocks, they have been reduced to something that is a very small number. I mean, it's, it's good. And the number of constants, I mean, I mean, one can say they are 20-something or something. It's kind of not very large. So, um, but it has been this trend. And I think this dream of many physicists, especially, I mean, from the 50s to the 70s, and these things, there was this idea that you can, every, this tendency will be to finding a unifying theory that it would be the only one that can explain everything. I mean, it can be that. I mean, there is another uh, fundamental theory that instead of being four forces, I mean, you have like 25, and then <laughs> you go back to something that is more complex. So, uh, but this has been this tendency, and I think this has been the dream of, of finding something that is unifying. And it was an expectation, and I don't know, I mean, uh, how, how is it going? And an sorry, and an interesting thing that happens there um, in our quest for unification, shall we say, one of these interesting properties of the universe is that physics manifests very differently at different energy scales. So as we've been seeking unifying laws, physics has also changed. So we started in this classical universe and entered the realm of special relativity and quantum field theory, and then we look at um, what happens with the four fundamental interactions as we increase in energy, and they begin to unify, and they become different, more unified interactions. But it's so interesting that the physics changes fundamentally with energy scale. So that, I think, also is related to this notion of complexity and emergence, that actually something, I don't know if I can use the word unexpected, but something new happens at certain energies. Actually, different physics emerges. Yeah, so I, I wanted to go back to the notion of randomness, because I think we can be a little bit more uh, quantitative uh, in these things. I think, for example, yeah, in the experiment that I was describing of the, of the cancers of the bacteria in getting antibiotic resistance or something, I mean, you prepare identically the same thing. And at the end, you cannot predict which of these 20 experiments that you identically prepare is going to be the one that is going to give antibiotic resistance in this particular thing, or the person who is going to get the cancer, or the cell that is going to get the cancer. But you can get things about distributions, and then on understanding what are the basic mechanisms that happen there. That's very useful. I mean, you can get um, what is the yeah, what are the mutational uh, factors that contribute to that. Um, what are the where the mutations happened? Uh, what are the genes? How these genes, uh, these mutations in these genes, confer resistance to the antibiotic? So you learn many things about what is the underlying thing that happens. 
and, um, and their distributions, and you learn things about distributions. That is, is very useful because uh, you learn many, many th uh, different things. In the planets, for example, in the exoplanets, now that we are observing many, is basically a similar thing of the galaxies. I mean, you start with similar conditions, and then you can try to see, starting from the similar condition, you have the same experiments. If, even if you cannot predict exactly what is the exact position of the planets, if you can get to kind of a distributional law, saying that, well, the probability of finding something with the mass of Jupiter in one astronomic unit is this one, something about probabilities and how these things happened. So that's a, this is a very powerful tool. I mean, even if we don't know exactly a deterministic answer to something, I think to predict distributions is very, very useful. And um, even if this is uh, an emerging, I mean, if the distribution per se is an emerging phenomenon uh, that you cannot compute exactly from, from the uh, initial conditions, I think this is very useful and it's, it's used a lot. Okay. Before we go to questions, I should tell you that we are having a roundtable on consciousness in March. <laughs> questions? presentation on astrophysical bi astrobiology. But I'd like to get back to emergence, and I was hoping that each of the panelists could describe what, in a thumbnail their definition of emergent consciousness, and then if you could really reassure me how machine emergent consciousness will not be man's most dangerous invention. <laughs> really? <laughs> That's for the philosopher, I think. Yes. Oh boy. Uh, yeah. So, so I, I do, as uh, my remarks uh, perhaps suggested, I do tend to think of um, animal consciousness, subjective consciousness that we have, that presumably other mammals have, and who knows how far down the life scale it goes. Uh, that it's a strongly emergent kind of phenomena. It, it, it involves giving rise to fundamentally new sort of features, uh, features of the whole organism um, that are not mere structural features, of, uh, but that are sustained, certainly, by the physical properties of the organism. So that's how I think about um, emergent consciousness, um, and it gives rise to very difficult questions about how one could ever theorize about it scientifically. I appreciate it. But, you know, I, I guess um, to quote the early 20th century emergentist Samuel Alexander, Scottish emergentist scientist, um, you know, we have to approach these things with the piety of the natural investigator. Um, that is, that we, that's how mysteriously we find ourselves as conscious beings in a world that's driven fundamentally by physical forces. And then we, it's our job, if we want to theorize about it, to figure out how that could be. Because it's true, but it's true. Um, now, the, the business of um, scientists being able to replicate forms of life that perhaps could be conscious, could be purposive forms of life, and uh, that might be less prone to irrational um, and uh, uh, social behavior than ourselves and get organized and take over or something like that. Uh, I, I can't provide any reassurances on that score. I just don't know what the possibilities, I think we just don't know what the possibilities are. So have to answer. Uh, anyone else who might want to jump? Oh, I, I, I don't know if anyone else wants to. That was a good answer. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll, I want to say one thing, but I'll go after you. So, uh, yeah, I don't have anything intelligent to say. Uh, that is, uh. <laughs> so, 
I, I think if, if some man-made creature behaved in a sufficiently sophisticated way, we would have to say it was conscious. If it really, you know, if it cried when its offspring were lost in the mall or whatever, you know, I, I, I think it would be very difficult to deny that it was feeling things and, and uh, I think that would be impossible to avoid. Um, as to whether that would translate into danger to us, that, that we simply can't tell. But I, I was curious actually, when your answer, does that mean that you think that this sort of Im strongly emergent new thing wouldn't exist if we built the, the thing, instead of it evolving naturally or being just descended from us, if we built a very complex robot, an artificial intelligence, and it behaved in a sufficiently human-like or even dog-like way, do you think it, that would mean that the, 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 the stuff, the, the emergent well, mental stuff was actually emerging in it? I think we'd have to, we have to say that um, we, we, we can't say for sure a priori Right. All we know about is that there's consciousness associated with a certain kind of biological form of life rooted in neurophysiology. We know that just because we have direct acquaintance with that phenomena, and we know it's intimately associated with our neurophysiology. Whether something that was sort of functionally equivalent to neurophysiology, but say silicon-based, something artificial, whether that would give, give rise to subjective experience or simply uh, something that would mimic um, uh, but not actually involve conscious experience, but would mimic the kind of behavior that conscious beings such as ourselves engage in, like crying right. and so forth. That's a deep question, and it's hard to say. Um, we, 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 we couldn't answer it. We couldn't conclusively verify it. We, it would be what would be our best theory based on the, the behavior. Um, but yeah, it's a difficult question. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm just wondering if there is something like a Turing test or something like that yeah. for consciousness. Well, I mean, we're basically, I'm saying I believe the Turing test, and yeah. he's yes. saying he doesn't completely buy yeah. it. Yeah. So, but the other thing is that can we can we postulate that there is? Uh, imagine that there is no consciousness, and if there is an an, op, an an animal, what they were saying before, something that there is no consciousness and is behaving exactly in the same way. And then the other thing that I think I found very problematic about consciousness is that, I mean, when you think evolution in an evolution, I mean, when you think uh, the relationship between different organisms in an evolutionary way, I mean, it's very hard to make a cut in when evolution happens, uh, so when uh, consciousness happens or not. Yeah. It's a very problematic concept. I mean, it's just... Yeah, it, 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 any notion of strong emergence implies a certain degree of discontinuity in natural evolution That's of right, process. Yeah. And but I, I think, think that just not very well defined. Not, I don't think it's particularly useful, and, um, and it's problematic. I mean, this is the problem with consciousness, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, concerning the origins of life uh, here, maybe elsewhere, why can't we answer that question by just creating it in the laboratory from fundamental elements? Um, it seems like the initial conditions shouldn't be that hard to recreate. We know what they were when the Earth life started, and it seems like it would be a lot cheaper than going searching the universe in all the varied places trying to find it. Is it just that we don't have the vaguest idea how it was done? Well, yeah, so I, you know, I have to say that you've got to search the universe because that's my career. That's what pays for my career. Uh, but no, you have a point. And so there are people whose approach to this question is to try and build life in the lab or have life emerge out of whatever they're doing in the lab. So the people looking at you know, the, the sort of more complex level, there are people building cells from scratch, building DNA from scratch and trying to make that function. And then at a lower level, there are people looking at, as, as you intimate, 
you know, if you take the mix of chemistry that we think perhaps existed on the early Earth four billion years ago, and you, you put it in the right conditions, what happens? And you know, I think part of the problem is we don't actually know precisely what was going on four billion years ago. We don't know what the, the starter mix was on the surface of the early Earth. It perhaps was more um, complex than we previously thought because we're now realizing that during the process of star and planet formation, uh, there's this great swirling disk of material that's there for a few tens of millions of years. And there's an enormous amount of complex chemistry that happens in that. And it only really happens then. Um, it doesn't happen in the sort of tenuous nebula between the stars. And it doesn't probably happen in the same way once you've got a planetary surface. So it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm biased. This is my sort of take on this, that there may be something special special is a bad word, maybe something that goes on in a forming planetary system that puts a far more uh, rich and complex chemical mixture down. Now, so what people are seeing with these experiments where they have, for example, amino acids and uh, certain catalysts and ultraviolet light in a sort of simulated marine environment, uh, stuff does start to happen. Uh, the problem is sort of making the conditions right so it keeps going. And, and we don't know how long it took. Uh, so simulating this in a lab, maybe you need to run the simulation in the lab for a million years. And we don't maybe, know. Maybe you need to have many cubic miles of, right, of material right, right. in one little corner right. of which the right thing happens Perhaps. once in a billion yeah. years. So I, th so I think it's a great question. I think you know, people are definitely doing that. Um, my take, my biased take is we need to do the other thing too, which is to look for finished examples. Yeah, I, I think the difference in just in volume and the difference in time is so many orders of magnitude away from a lab and, and, the, and the things that, I mean, it's not, uh, you cannot extrapolate. It's difficult. I mean, there may be ways to sort of accelerate opportunity. Yeah, for but these many things. orders of magnitude. Sure, yeah, yeah absolutely. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, I was glad to hear you were channeling Yogi Berra when you said it was remarkable how much you could do just by looking. Uh, his, <laughs> his quote was, I think it's, um, it's amazing how much you can observe just by watching. So very similar. He was a wise man. <laughs> the first planetary scientist, perhaps. Um, I'm curious. Something that struck me when I was a child, in, in, and it wasn't my parents, in uh, the Museum of Natural History, and that was the giant T-Rex skeleton. And I looked at it, and I said, it has a pelvis. It has a spine. It has a skull. It's got arms, legs. All the bones look sort of similar, the muscles, the... Is that the galaxies coming together? Is there a common ancestor that I'm unaware of? Or is it just the environmental pressures coming up with some kind of a similar result, even though dinosaurs and mammals are quite different? So that's just common my origin. question. Yeah. My yeah, eight-year-old question. Common origin. <laughs> I'm sorry? We have a common ancestor that has uh, all the features. Good. Thank you. Very briefly, just to answer Dr. Alfred's question, why do most of the galaxies look similar? It's because the laws of physics are the same in all of our known universe. In a multiverse, the, um, as alluded to by string theory, for example, the uh, physical constants might be different, and uh, you would have different 
formations or none at all. Anyway, getting back to the emergence of consciousness, um, it seems to me that consciousness is just the response to, to our environment. It's nothing special except that it's on a very complex level, no different from an amoeba responding to, uh, to its environment. It seems that the entire conversation was very egocentric and also geocentric, earth-centric. Um, I think everybody in this room is conscious, and I think most of us would agree that uh, most mammals are conscious, although that was not accepted until the 20th century, still not accepted by some religious <coughs> fanatics. Um, but would you say a worm is conscious? Would you say a plant is conscious? Plants have been known to respond differently to different types of music, for example. Um, and um, as, as Dr. Scharf stated, there, there are complex organic molecules in interstellar space. In fact, um, uh, most of the essential amino acids have, have been found in meteorites that have landed on Earth. So life and consciousness unique to planet Earth is not, not necessarily the truth. But my question is, uh, what is your threshold for consciousness? Humans are obviously conscious by our definition, so are mammals. As a worm, as uh, a flower. Is, uh, is uh, a molecule that can uh, self-replicate, is that conscious or not conscious? What is, you know, what is the threshold? Good. Uh, so distinguish two things that uh, in us come together in certain complex ways. One is uh, goal-directed uh, goal behavioral response to some kind of stimuli of your sense organs, right? Uh, worms engage in that, plants, plants engage in that. There's, there's a responsiveness, behavioral responsiveness. Um, but the, the idea of consciousness is something that mediates stimuli and certain kinds of behavioral response. So you asked me a question, I'm consciously aware of that, I'm thinking about it, I'm having conscious thoughts, and then that has now led to my verbal behavior, right? That's the observable thing, uh, which is my speech. Um, the, the, so, and you say, well, what's the definition? When, when do we have consciousness? Well, we have consciousness when uh, there's something it's like to be that kind of organism. That is, there's a point, it has a point of view, right? Uh, Non-living things, we assume, um, like tables, have no point of view. They just are. They have intrinsic third-personal uh, properties that can be described in third-personal terms. Um, Plants, we typically suppose, maybe biology will surprise us one day, but we typically suppose there's nothing it's like to be a plant, although it does engage in uh, organismic response to stimuli, right? It, there's no subjective experience associated because it doesn't have the right, in, our, our best understanding of where, where do conscious states, what, what, where are their origins? Well, it's, for us, it's, its origins is in a functioning neurophysiological system of a certain kind. And then, then things get a bit obscure, you know, exactly how does functioning neuronal interactions and, and large-scale neural assemblies give rise to subjective experience? That, that's the difficult can question. I, yeah, please. That, you know, on an atomic scale, 
particles governed by quantum physics, which is really everything, uh, do not respond in a deterministic way. So can't we say that uh, an electron has an opinion? You say consciousness is an opinion. An electron could, if you shoot an electron out of a cathode ray tube, it could land over there, over there, over there. We could say that's an opinion. Why, why is that not consciousness? In other words, what, what makes our consciousness so special, and what is the threshold level? I think, I think one okay. way to March 7 and ask that question. The subject <laughs> is consciousness. I want to say one thing about it. It's like wealthy, right? Wealthy is, you know, 10K a year more than me. And, <laughs> and conscious is a little, bit down, a little bit simpler behavior than mine, but not too much simpler. Right? So, I mean, this, is, this is an ego well, who, who's, who sets the definitions of the words? Not the worms. We don't know. This is kind of related. I hope it comes out coherently. Um, so the beginning of consciousness, self-consciousness, and the beginning of life from non-life, even the emergence of a complex universe, seems to require the input of some kind of information. So. When an infant becomes self-aware, he's talking to his parents, parents are speaking to. It seems to correlate when infants become self-aware. There's information exchange happening from um, inanimate to animate. You have a genetic code. That's a, a genetic language. Something about language systems seems to be um, inherently arbitrary. The rules of grammar of the English language don't derive from physical laws. So can you guys bounce that around? What does that imply about the... Um, emergence of life and self-consciousness. <laughs> I mean, maybe I, I, I was going to say this before to the previous question, but it was perhaps more appropriate here. I mean, you know, what's interesting when I hear people talking about consciousness and is there a threshold beyond which you know, this is conscious in the way that we, we see it and so on, I, I wonder if you could just forget about all that for a moment and ask, well, okay, so why is there consciousness? Now, obviously, the easy thing to say is, well, it's because it, there's some sort of evolutionary advantage. It's to do with, yes, our response to stimuli. It's to do with our ability to make abstractions. And, and it's the, due to the ability of other things to do that. It's something in our... So, you know, perhaps somewhere in here, there has to be talk about the origins of consciousness. Right? What point in evolutionary history... And why was it suddenly advantageous, or was it just a chance thing that you know some organism mutated in the right way? There was some you know point mutation in a piece of DNA, and 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 you had enough complexity in neuronal growth or whatever to, to give rise to this. Because uh, I haven't heard that piece of this at all. Yeah. The other thing, how independent? Going back to the question, I thought it was very very interesting. Is that how uh, how dependent is on language uh, the uh, definition of consciousness? I mean, you are saying that we are kind of aware, and then we are talking the whole time with ourselves, and we are uh, interiorizing kind of a speech for ourselves. So, if uh, if there is a person that cannot talk and has been isolated from the world of communication, um, is there a way of saying that this person, uh, without access to any language, this person is uh, conscious and? Um, I would certainly think so, right? Um, uh, language may be, um, it, it's a difficult theoretical question that cognitive scientists think, theorize about, but the, the dependency of, of abstract reflective thought on language and how, how the two are bound up. 
that's one question. But consciousness itself, yeah. right? There are animals that we have reason to believe do not have a language capacity, but presumably because their 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 basic neurophysiology is sufficiently similar to us, and their behaviors indicates they are engaged. They they do have conscious states of various they can kinds. They can in non-linguistic ways, right? Yes. That's why we think right. dogs are conscious, right? Because so it doesn't it doesn't have to be language. That's yes. That's but now, but now, but now, the question of the, the the original question that was being asked about the relationship of information to consciousness. This is something that some cognitive scientists do think. Right? They puzzle. What what is the function of consciousness? Uh, why do you need this intermediary, subjective, mental aspect? What would that what would that be doing biologically? Presumably, it has to have some kind of ad advantage. Um, surely, it's not just a, a mere chance mutation. It's such a remarkable thing. If um, and so some some uh, scientists do theorize it has something to do with information uh, that is had by different modules in our neurophysiological system, in some sense coming together, right? So right now I can have visual information, auditory information, I can be thinking about the topic we're talking about. All this information is coming together for me somehow in one overarching complex conscious state. And there's usefulness of a kind of a free sharing of information um, that Perhaps this is just the beginning of, of a spec that, that, that consciousness seems to be a place where a lot of uh, information that, that we, we derive both from our senses and internal thought processes comes together. And so perhaps, perhaps it is actually very relevant. But we don't know. Okay. A lot of my questions were already asked, so I'm making one up as I go along a couple. Uh, but first, a couple of quick observations. Um, I think some of the trouble of discussing this is that we have a predilection to name our experiences and our observations and then treat that idea as an ideat, as a real thing, and then proceed to give it properties. Uh, so to me, that's one of the real uh, difficulties in consciousness. I'm not going to get in, that's not really part of my question, but I'll just point out that the reason the conversation goes nowhere until there is a physical substrate that we can point to and work with it's in a self-enclosed area of neural philosophy, right? And so that's as far as it goes. However, one, the question related to that, and then I have another similar uh, couplet of observation and question. Uh, the neocortex generates a weak electromagnetic field that's been sh Im implicated in relatively recent research as being the mechanism for uh, synchronization between distal brain areas because the axonal propagation speed of 100 meters a second doesn't doesn't account for it. So I'm willing, to, I'm hoping to hear any response at all, uh, based on somewhat on my lead-in, uh, to what you or perhaps you might uh, think about about that about uh, the experience of consciousness is possibly the experience of the electromagnetic fields feedback behavior and interaction with the neocortex. Uh, something like that. So that's number one. Uh, number two has to do with dark matter, which is also guilty of being an, I, an idea, not an idea just yet, although we observe the physical phenomena. So the question I have there is that um, my understanding of the standard model and some of the more troubling new introductions, supersymmetry, some other uh, areas, indicate that if dark matter, a dark matter particle perhaps other than a, a weakly interacting massive particle or strongly interactive massive particle, if it's something different, uh, then the standard model has to, it can't, it can't accommodate that. So that was a question for you. Okay, thank you. So two questions. 
Well, one is for you, one is for you. Uh, well, uh, I'll, I'll just say the little bit that I do know about your first question um, about synchronicity uh, in the brain, maybe connecting. The, 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 well, I know about synchronicity. Are you talking about synchronization? Yes, I think, I think what you're talking about, I'm sorry. Um, I, I think I was intending the word in the sense you have in mind, right? So th this was an idea that was um, put forward by uh, Christoph Koch, uh, a computational biologist yeah. at Caltech, yeah, together with uh, Francis Crick of Crick and Watson fame, uh, that maybe this is the, the biological, the maybe. physical substrate to consciousness. And just my understanding, and now I'll pass it over to my colleague who actually knows this stuff, perhaps, uh, that this idea is has sort of died away, that, that perhaps, yeah, I think even Francis Crick himself has now latched onto a new well, different dead, sort of so, hypothesis. But there, wasn't, uh, there was another paper within the, the idea past couple of years ago. Okay, but, but I, I'm not a biologist, um, uh, so I can't speak with any authoritativeness to any of this. Yeah, you want to uh, say anything? So, uh, yeah, I don't have anything uh, to say about that because I don't know the topic very well. So, uh, also, I mean, I'm very skeptical about many consciousness uh, things. Going back to the dark matter, and this is something that uh, I think they are very different things. I mean, I think the dark matter has been observed. I mean, it has not been observed with photons, but it has been observed the gravitational I mean, effects, and they are kind of very nice uh, experiments, I mean, experiments by nature that happens to be there, and you can explain very good uh, things that are there. So I think it's there, it's observed, and the only thing is that it's not uh, interacting with, uh, with light. And um, consciousness by... I mean, it has not been observed. So, on the dark matter, and let me just see if I understand your question. Um, so, it sounds like what you're asking is um, the how our models of dark matter fit into the standard model. Is that yeah. the essence of the question? Essentially, because when I was at the LHC conference, there was some you know pretty robust discussion about uh, the understanding that it, depending on what if and what the, the dark matter particle turns out to be, if it does, that it would not fit into very nicely the standard model as we have it now. It, it, completely correct. And in fact, it does not fit into the standard model at all. So um, what does that mean then, the, the, aside from the physics? Well, there are a number of issues with the standard model. We know that it's not a fundamental theory of the universe, and there are a number of problems with it. Uh, the first one being that it does not um, contain a quantum theory of gravity. That's the first issue. Um, it does not account for neutrino masses, which seems like this is a standard model problem, right? We have neutrinos in the standard model, and in the standard model, they're massless. Um, third, there's no viable dark matter candidate within the standard model. And then fourth, there are a number of mathematical issues that are a little bit subtle with the, with the standard model. So the fact that there must be, must maybe is a strong word, but all of these experimental pieces plus the theoretical piece from uh, uh, on the mathematics certainly suggests that there is a more fundamental theory um, and I would say that when we talk about supersymmetry for example supersymmetry is sort of uh, one one more fun like one fundamental step down uh, from the standard model in the sense that we now invoke a new symmetry between fermions and bosons so it's a more fundamental theory however even supersymmetry in its simplest form does not necessarily involve gravitation now there are super string theories right string theories that are involve supersymmetry so even supersymmetry is an effective 
is an effective theory of some more fundamental theory, right? That's what's driving theoretical physicists right now is the sense that we will have some unified theory in the bottom. So, real, just one really quick follow-up about the bicep too. It's about bicep too. I'll talk. Sure, we can talk about bicep too. Recent indication is that it may not be dust. Is that true? I thought it was dust. And an event that, that reductionist scientists claim is a great victory for their team is that um, many phenomena that were cataloged and described by classical thermodynamicists were subsequently explained at a microscopic fundamental level by statistical mechanicians. So, so this is a very inviting target for um, champions of strong emergence. And, and a particular uh, crack at it that, that, that I've heard recently um, goes like this. I think this is from a physicist named Sean Carroll. Said, um, phase transitions, he was about, they're very important phenomena that are occurring in physical systems everywhere at, at all different levels, all different energies involving many different substances. Um, and, and he says, and when you examine these closely, it appears as if the way they happen is always the same, no, ma no matter what the system is made of. In other words, it really doesn't depend on what the nature of the particles is. So, so if that's true, then, then how can you say that, that, the, that the microscopic particulars of what the, 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 the constituents of the system are is in any way determining what's happening at the, at the higher level? I, um, I have my own reasons for not being impressed by that argument, but I want to know what the members of the panel think. Thank you. Well, so it would be an example of weak emergence, I think, not strong emergence. It would yeah. be successfully explaining large-scale behavior in terms of little things. But yeah, so it's true that sometimes very changing the little stuff doesn't make much difference to the big stuff. And galaxies may be an example of that. Any old fluctuation will give you the same thing. So can you? I, th I think I'm you're not sure what the question. critical exponents and all these things. Critical exponents, where they are phase transitions, uh, trying to see, you can classify the phase transitions with some exponents of, uh, is that? Well, I, I think that what the, uh, the argument was, was that if um, pro um, properties of the microscopic constituents are determining what's happening, then the way it happens should in some way um, depend on what those particles are. In some way, but it may be very little. So sometimes you'll find that much the same microscopic in sorry, wildly different microscopic inputs give you much the same macroscopic output, but sometimes, like mutations, it makes a huge difference. So is that, does that answer I, I, I think I, probably, I mean, you have in mind, like in a statistical mechanics, when you, you imagine that you change, I mean, you can describe, for example, the, the gas in this room with temperature and pressure and volume and these different things. And you don't have to know what are the details of the molecules. So if you just change hydrogen or nitrogen by car, whatever it is, I mean, uh, then basically you can describe the same system with a few variables that are independent of what is the microscopic details of the gas that is in the room. Is that, is that, and then there are distributions that you can do statistics on, on these things. Well, I, I, I think you, you, you've, you've essentially recapitulated what my own objection was to the, uh, um, to what I thought when I first read, when I first read this. So, yeah. Next question, and then you can always I just wanted to thank all of you. It's been a tremendous discussion with wide-ranging uh, 
uh, input from different fields, and, and I'm sure everybody else have greatly enjoyed it. My question really goes back to the, the fundamental question of uh, emergence. I, I take it most of you have staked out a position as weak emergence um, proponents. Um, and I'm just trying to get my arms around what that means. I mean, uh, a, a cloud, when it produces rain, I guess we don't think of rain as emergence, but if it's a little colder and it produces snowflakes and each one of them is unique and has uh, this extraordinary crystal structure, we think of it as an emergent phenomenon. But I think it's, it's something, I don't know enough about meteorology, meteorology to know, but I, I assume it's something that science can replicate in the laboratory and understand thoroughly. Um, is that really, is it just something that's very neat that we, you know, that comes out as something simple, like, you know, bees have this extraordinary uh, society, or starlings, when they fly, produce these amazing patterns? Um, and I'm ruling out the strong version of emergence, which seems to me just sort of god of the gaps to some extent. Is, is there more to emergence that is just really cool stuff that comes out of simple stuff that we either understand thoroughly or at least have the possibility of understanding thoroughly? I think that's about it. I, mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's about it for most of I would say I think that's about it for a lot of the phenomena in question. Uh, that is, uh, just because I, I do think of consciousness as strongly emergent, that doesn't give me any tendency towards thinking of any of these other. I think that's part of the one thing that's distorted thinking about um, uh, emergence is we, we gravitate towards one simple overarching sort of explanatory paradigm. Is it weak emergence or strong? And I think we've got different phenomena, and it's an empirical question in every case and uh, maybe we need to theorize about it differently. There is a commonality. The reason we use the word emergence in all these cases is just the idea of new interesting patterns that involve forms of behavior and property instantiations that are different from the kinds of patterns describable in lower level sciences that different, invoke different concepts, uh, property concepts, than one invokes in lower level science. And so in that sense, you know, that's emergence uh, of, that's uncontroversial, but the details and whether or not it amounts to something much stronger than merely that, that becomes an empirical question. Um, I have a question about instrumentation, really, and, and not just um, man-made in the sense of man-made outside of us, but also our own uh, instrumentation as in how much we understand and our senses. Um, and how that plays into how we think of what we know. Um, and it seems that during the discussion there was, um, well, there was no mention of it. I'm sure it plays into the consciousness of what you study and, and what you measure. Because, um, because sometimes uh, I feel like we forget that. And um, in terms of, it goes, I want to link it back to the idea of consciousness. Um, you know, uh, one thing about communicating um, our consciousness is not just language in the sense of human language, but also if you put too much stuff on that table, it will break. Is that communication? Isn't that feedback? Isn't feedback communication? So um, how do we know that? It, I, I think we, um, we're losing the sense that we have a limited capacity to understand that if you can talk about 
measuring and the idea of instruments and how that limits us. Um, it always feels like um, that we forget that we have this limitation, we continue um, to be limited by our, not only our capacity to understand, well ultimately our capacity to understand, but also our instrumentation, the instruments that we use. So if you can talk about that a little bit. What's up your uh, Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting point. As you were saying, I was thinking, well, the funny thing is we live at a time where we're now constructing tools and instruments, particularly in terms of software and computers, that greatly extend our ability to understand things, to understand particularly things like emergent phenomena where, I mean, you talked about, you end up thinking about distributions of things rather than an individual instance of a particular you know, event or, or whatever. So, I, you know, I, I guess I've, yeah, this is just what popped into my head that that the conversation is constantly changing, and perhaps it's always changed, right? We're constantly uh, uh, augmenting our capacity. We used to do it by grinding lenses and peering into you know, test tubes or out at the stars, and we're still doing that, but now we're also constructing uh, software and machines that greatly extend our capacity to, to uh, distill and conceptualize vast amounts of data that otherwise would appear extremely unstructured to our raw senses. Um, so I, I, yeah, I don't know. That, that, was, that, that doesn't really answer anything. I just put that out there. <laughs> I, I think there's, there's a deep and difficult question here. So, so we have our basic five senses. So I'm looking at this tabletop, which has a cylindrical, shallow cylindrical shape. I can learn about that uh, perceptually through vision. It has a certain look to me from a certain angle. I can get tactile information about its shape. Um, we, 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 these, the, the tactile information and the visual information, they, they go together so constantly in us that we, we forget if we stopped and isolated. Those are completely different forms of information that are coming in and we've just learned to associate them so that if I close my eyes and have that check, I can picture before my mind something that will look what it, like what it will look like when I open my eyes. But in fact, these are two just very different. And as you say, it, they, they have a certain degree of precision um, and they have certain limits. Uh, our senses. So then theoretical science sort of tries to abstract away from these things and give kind of formalized um, pictures of reality, kind of very, you know, mathematized dynamical theories. Uh, but then when it comes to, yeah, but do we understand what the theory is saying? We, it seems like the formalism isn't enough. I mean, quantum mechanics is the great case, right? It's this beautiful mathematical formalism, uh, apparently, for those who understand it well. Uh, and it's extremely predictively accurate. I'm told the most accurate theory in the history of science, right? And yet you say, but intuitively to understand, it's one thing to work with the theory and say, okay, apply the formalism, do the measurements of a certain sort, and you can predict not individual outcomes, but patterns, distribution of outcomes, and it all comes out right. But then you say, yeah, but what is it saying about the deep structure of matter? And because we can't visualize it, we can't connect it to our senses, we feel like there's a barrier. We don't, in some sense, really understand it. So for us, understanding uh, is, is bounded by our ability to picture and visualize. So it's, it raises deep, I think, deep philosophical questions about the limits of understanding. Yeah, and it seems like because we think from our own perspective and we very seldomly think of things from another perspective, maybe hmm. even another animal's perspective, forget the 
table's perspective, you know, um, that sometimes that limits us from understanding from a different way and sure. seldom the egotistical aspect of ourselves refuse to let us think from other perspectives in some ways and, and that limits our understanding as well. Okay, thank you. Nick. <laughs> uh, thanks for this uh, amazing discussion. You, um, you really have blown my mind many times. And uh, so I wanted to ask a couple, two, two quick questions. I'll make it quick. Um, Dr. Rabadan, you really bummed me out when you shot down the whole consciousness idea. I thought we were going to talk about all different kinds of consciousness, and you're like, no, it's not, there's no such thing. So, um, so this question's for you. Um, I read some really interesting stuff about um, how our thoughts and our moods and stuff can be influenced by the flora in our intestines or that, um, that, that parasites and other things can influence our thoughts or maybe even our sense of identity. So um, I've kind of been feeling like uh, that consciousness or thought, if that's a better word for you, is um, a consensus of different things happening and maybe even of different living things happening. And so I wanted you to maybe share anything that the thoughts you have on that concept. Uh, and then the second question was uh, for Dr. Um, sorry, Krusberg. Uh, um, I noticed in your bio, and it must be in here because you didn't want it taken out, <coughs> so I, I figure it's fair game. That you're, a, that you're a Buddhist, and so I really wanted to know your perspective on your thoughts of emergence uh, and all of this particle physics and stuff, and how does that fit with Buddhism, and do you see any similarities or convergence in those two? Because to me, as a layman in both, uh, the language sometimes sounds the same uh, uh, when I think of emergence and when I think of like you know the singular mind or I'm not a Buddhist, but you know what I mean. So those are my questions. Thank you. Yeah, so um, regarding the democratic uh, voting theory of consciousness, because I don't, I don't know what consciousness is. Or thought. Or thought. Um, so, uh, no, I don't, I don't think in thought is true. But I think there is some very interesting data that, um, that can be uh, 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 quantitatively uh, um, be precise. For example, if one of the things that I think is fascinating, if we just look in, in, in the genome of any of our cells, so this is like uh, two copies and there are three billion letters of those. Only 1% is coding genes, so only 1% is doing proteins, most of the proteins that we know. But there is like 10% that they are dead viruses, many of those they are alive. So they are things that happened in our history, they came and they infect us, they stay there, Many of, them, uh, of those, they die, and we carry this cemetery. Each of our, our cells, they carry a cemetery of, of viruses that is more than, than the, uh, the, the, the protein uh, coding part of our genome. And this is fascinating. And, and you see there are a lot of um, exchange of genomic material between different species also. And, uh, in bacteria, it happens very often, but through different mechanisms. And for example, these things, I mean, we have a lot of things, even in our cells. And then, as you were saying, in all the microbiome, in all the, uh, this is a very active field of research, is trying to connect, many of my colleagues, they are trying to connect the microbiome and many different things, uh, many different health conditions. And, um, and it's a very active field of research. And there, uh, it's very challenging from many technical point of views. Uh, um, but I mean, I can discuss with you in detail many of these things. It's very, very interesting. I think it's, uh, I think uh, just saying that we are a very homogeneous type of organism and all these things, even from the evolution point of view, I think it's fascinating. I mean, how 
I mean, we know that some of our genes, the ones that are important for us, and they were coming from other organisms. So this is fascinating, I mean, that we have this migration of different information between different species that, um, that have been blocked in, uh, by our traditional uh, viewpoint. And um, yeah, and in animals, it's usually kind of the idea of a species that they are kind of isolated uh, reproductive units. It's true, but when you go to plants, for example, you see that many of the plants that we drink and smoke every day, I mean, they are the combination of merging of different species and all these things. So this is fascinating about, I mean, now that we are reading a lot of these genomes, we, are, uh, we realize how these uh, amounts of information from different places, I mean, is coming together and all this is fascinating. Uh, so, <laughs> First, you have to meditate. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Let me begin by saying that um, that I'm a um, I'm a practitioner of Buddhism, uh, and I'm not a uh, thinker of Buddhism. Uh, which means that I'm a meditation practitioner and I practice meditation regularly. And your question is very interesting because in my experience, my first person experience, there are analogies between what I know about theoretical physics and my experience in meditation and consequently in daily life. And um, one example, and this is something that I've thought a little bit about, is the notion of space in theoretical physics and in Buddhism. Um, of course, we've talked a little bit about space in this discussion, but space, from a physics point of view, um, is actually very complicated. If you take out all of the stuff that's in space, that's in the universe, um, and you're just left with space, that space actually has some fundamental energy to it. Um, you have this uh, ability to create particle-anti-particle pairs just from the vacuum. And um, from that, those energy fluctuations, we get the emergence of, of particles, and, and in fact, these fluctuations give rise to uh, structure in the universe. And, and again, this is very experiential, but something similar happens, I think, with our experience in the sense that it emerges from um, what we would say in Buddhism is the dharmakaya, the vast space of experience. And from that dharmakaya, um, there's a sambhogakaya, a, uh, an energy fluctuation, and out of that emerges, emerges our experience, which is the nirmanakaya. So there are some similar, I mean, this is, I could really go on for a while here, but, um, but that's one thing that from my experience, um, kind of one analogy between physics and the experience of reality that we kind of tap into through meditation. So let me stop there and we can talk more about it after, but it's... So I'll just ask the question first, and then I'll give my reasons for asking the question. But the question is, um, why? So we've talked a lot about different things. What is actually an example of strongly emergent phenomena in the environmental science? And this is why I'm asking this. You're pointing. It's because 
we've talked about it kind of in philosophy of mind, so the problem of consciousness, and we say it's like specifically in the nature of consciousness itself that we can't, that it's not reducible. Um, and then we kind of came up with one example in, with you, with physics, that was that um, the idea of multiple universes, and we get to the definite, if we give a really specific, precise definition of the universe, then we can't say that there is more than one, right? It's just logically impossible. So then my question would be, because strongly emergent phenomena only in those two cases or in a case where it's just definitionally impossible um, to come up with phenomena that explains this, the higher level. And on the other hand, like with environmental, biological sciences, chemistry, do we actually have examples of strongly emergent phenomena? Even if you don't believe them yourselves, I can tell you're all rejectionists, but if you don't believe them, what are the examples? Yeah. Well, so um, I think, okay, so I, I think there might be a problem with strong emergence in principle, which is that if you have some, if you see some new thing that is apparently strongly emergent, you can, your first effort is going to be to create new entities to subsume it into a new framework and then it'll just be part of the whole theory you already have. It won't have emerged. It'll just, like, like the magnetic field or the neutrino, you'll just add it to the inventory and keep it. And th then the question is, what kind of thing could that not apply to? And the poster child for that was conscious experience, but then my suggestion about that was that it's decoupled from everything. It's, it's sort of unreachable in principle. And so, yeah, it's decoupled from being able to be subsumed into that because it's decoupled from everything. Now, you're you're going to disagree with that. So, you know, you, you get airtime. But so <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe strong emergence is a difficult thing to actually really have. Hmm. I'll play off Mark's comment. First, uh, uh, an advertisement for a different way of being a realist about conscious experience and saying that it's fundamental without being emergentist is to say it's ubiquitous. The so-called old panpsychist idea, which is getting some new play again. Uh, so then you say our conscious experience is just a full-blown particular um, form of something that's there in matter everywhere. You treat it as something fundamental. Maybe it's the intrinsic character of the physical more, more generally. Lots of ideas. Philosophers like to, to run play, play with this idea. Um, I'm, I'm not myself disposed in that direction, but a lot of people are. Um, the, but the, other thing, the only other thing I wanted to say, and really to kick it to some people with the, the physics uh, background, is we haven't talked about quantum entanglement, right? Uh, and that seems like it could be naturally, this is very low level physics, right? Where particles get, uh, need to be treated as coupled in a certain way and the, the, the rough idea is that you cannot um, describe, you can't decompose the coupled system in terms of the, 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 the intrinsic properties and the relations among them of, of the individual particles that entered into this system. There's a, some sense systemic property of this entangled system that isn't, you, you can't think of it as in some sense just built up out of uh, the individual properties, uh, items in isolation. And then some people say, going space time, so I'm looking at you, this is all up your alley I assume. Uh, some people say, well, uh, if quantum mechanics is ubiquitous, then the whole universe becomes, possibly needs to be thought of, theorized as, and in one great big quantum entangled system. And so now we've got global strong emergence, perhaps. 
But with that, I'll just pass it over to you. Yeah. <laughs> In three sentences. <laughs> I don't think that's uh, entanglement is an example of. Uh, okay. All right, so, so for entanglement, I mean, you have uh, you have a particle that can be up or down. Another particle is up or down, and then you have. Uh, a way of describing this thing, which is a vector space, another one, and you construct a new one by taking the tensor product of the two. So, uh, taking the units, you can construct a Hilbert space, you can construct a space that is the space of everything. So, taking each of the units, you can take uh, you can take a new definition, or I mean a new definition, a new space, that you can describe the whole system. I think it's an example of what I was saying. The wave function, right? We say, oh, there's the wave function, and that captures all this entanglement. And then we talk about the wave function. That's how we do physics now. So we just added a new entity to capture that thing. But if this, if this new entity is a global thing, it's not an atomistic thing, oh. then in what sense have we not embedded some kind of strong notion of emergence into the, the fundamental theory? It can, saying it can you be have described to. By, the, by the individual. So if there are these uh, bottles here, and each of those, you have the definition of, I mean, you have a system, a way of uh, uh, quantizing the system. You can combine the whole system by taking the product of all these different things. So there is a very well formal way of doing these things. I'm not going to debate It, it makes a stronger so. connection between things than there was present in classical physics before yes. you had wave functions. That's true. Yes. Okay, please fill your questionnaires and thank you very much. Yeah.